God. I don't believe this. The rose. The rose was a symbol for the Holy Grail. Welcoming back Sue Dionysus MPH for the second installment of our ongoing series about the work of Dan Brown. So today we will get into the central opus of his uh, career, i.e. the Robert Langdon novels. And we'll begin with Angels and Demons, which is actually published, as I believe I mentioned in the previous episode, in between his two pre-symbological or pre-Langdon novels, Digital Fortress and Deception Point. So it appears prior to Deception Point. Both, I believe, are published in or around 2001, and both are pre-9-11 novels, which, as we'll see, is an important um, fact about them. And uh, so he publishes Angels and Demons, then Deception Point. Um, neither, as far as I know, are, I mean, certainly not as hugely successful as the next installment, The Da Vinci Code. But... And interestingly, Angels and Demons ends up being almost like a prequel because the film is made after the film of the Da Vinci Code. And I would say most people read it or its um, best-selling status. It comes subsequently to that of the Da Vinci Code. So even though it's written before, most people don't really encounter it until after. But nevertheless, we will discuss Angels and Demons um, prior to Da Vinci Code since it is the uh the first of the the novels about Harvard professor of symbology Robert Langdon. So let's start by just revisiting some of the major themes of the first episode where we discuss Digital Fortress and Deception Point and then try to figure out how Brown um sort of shifts these concerns to a different stage which interestingly is no longer the US but Europe and even though there's an American protagonist and um, no, no longer really uh, centrally features, although the, this will change in the later Langdon novels, but for Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code, the American deep state, which is the clear focus of the first two novels recedes into the background. And instead we are dealing with other institutions. So, so Dionysus, would you mind just kind of reviewing the, the major themes of the past um, episode and you know, perhaps setting us up for how they play into the Da Vinci Code? Hey, it's, um, I was thinking about our discussion here after we recorded um, the last one, and I, <clears throat> I think it's very important that there are other podcasts that are about the works of Dan Brown, and they're largely concerned with um, summarizing chapter by chapter um, Dan Brown. And we uh, we give the, the perfect compliment um, to this material in that the content of the novels is largely missing, and we bring you the view from above. Um, and uh so they these should these should be paired together with uh with these sorts of rehearsals of of dan brown i can't can't really imagine why you would want to do that to yourself, but um maybe we can discuss the masochism of the text uh later on when uh masochism comes up in in dan brown but right so one of the 
the big concerns of the pre-symbological novels, Digital Fortress and Deception Point, is um, Dan Brown imagining the relations between um, between the parts of the state and the U.S. state, and particularly the security state, and their and non-state actors and their relationship to sort of geopolitical stability. So there's some kind of information problem that is some discovery um, or in a scientific discovery and deception points or um, a discovery about the transparency of communications uh, to the U.S. government um, in Digital Fortress that that threatens um, a stable political reality. And the relationships among the characters who are um, by and large actors within the deep state end up mattering for geopolitical stability. And so then the, the novels trace out a kind of recapture of normal life um, and a restoration of the normal orders of science where science functions properly and the state functions properly and people's families and sex lives function properly, marriage, heteronormativity, reproduction. Um, all of this gets tied together with what it is to know as a, as a state actor with the cryptographer as, um, as a increasingly central protagonist. And indeed, by the time we get to the Da Vinci Code, there will be a cryptologist who is one of the main characters and, um, opposite another uh, the the famous Robert Langdon, who is a kind of cousin of the cryptologist, the symbologist. So the characters that are in these first couple of novels um, are going to get sort of reassembled, and um, the um, the the characters that do decoding work, the characters that are mediators for other people's knowledge. Um, uh, and, th- and they will they will get reassembled into um, Robert Langdon, the the symbologist, who's also the double of Dan Brown himself, right? And um, we can talk about this again, but in in images that Dan Brown um, produces of himself for public consumption, these are they're highly curated, highly staged images, and he always dresses in a very particular way. Um, and he's there. You can see him in his study with the mantle in the background, and um, uh, he, he's he's very clearly um, uh, Robert Langton's opposite. So, geopolitical stability, imagined as a concern about the state, is going to, in a complicated way that we're going to talk about, turn into a concern about science and religion, and about religion and um, and history as well. So that's a place to start. So as is well known with both Angels and Demons and Da Vinci Code, uh, Brown shifts his primary interest from the American state to uh, the Vatican. And there's quite a bit of um, interest in this choice in relation to what we talked about last time as i mentioned before 
we have to see Brown as sort of a, a fail son of the old wasp New England elite, right? Who's, who's, um, you know, fixated on the sort of, um, the challenges that that elite faces, uh, in the sort of new post Cold War era. And so we still have a, something of a, a representative of that elite in, in Harvard professor Robert Langdon, although, Curiously, um, at one point you learn that he was raised Catholic, I believe, which is, you know, a curious detail. Um, but he, um, is repeatedly embroiled in the, um, the, these sort of crises facing the, the Catholic Church, right? So, Clearly, in some ways, the Catholic Church and its sort of um, challenges of succession, Angels and Demons is explicitly about succession, about papal succession, um, and sort of its uh, the its self perpetuation is a is a um, constant concern. So here you have, on one hand, the the oldest institution of the West. Um, but at the same time, although Da Vinci Code, as we'll see to some extent, claims that isn't, isn't quite the case, but we have the oldest institution of the West, which is at the same time an, an all male institution, um, which propagates itself despite its vow of celibacy, um, you know, respected within it. So what this means is it's a, it's it's a kind of elite that has perpetuated itself in quite a different way than the American elite, right? Um, not by creating uh, lineages and bloodlines of of um, of elite, uh, you know, um, figures in you know academia, the state, etc., but rather by cultivating a sort of ideological and intellectual elite whose succession takes the form of um, a, a sort of adherence to a creed, right? So Angels and Demons, it's worth noting, um, you know, begins with a sort of explicit contrast between two institutions, which is on one hand the Vatican, and then on the other hand um, CERN, the uh, you know, major laboratory in Switzerland. So we, we can get into that a bit more, but I did want to point out that in both these contexts, you have this odd, um, issue of succession brought up because you have in, within CERN, you have, um, Leonardo Vetra, who is murdered at the beginning and Vittoria Vetra, his adoptive daughter. So it's important to note that Leonardo Vetra is both, both a physicist and a priest. Um, and, you know, he <clears throat> has this sort of successor in the form of an adoptive daughter, despite his being a priest. So um, conversely, we have within the Vatican and illicit um, 
basically we we have what is only later revealed in the story, which is that the Pope has um through IVF um produced a son without violating his vow of celibacy. And the son is the so-called Camerlengo or Chamberlain, who, as we'll see, becomes a, a major figure in the, the story. So we have these two sort of odd lineages that, you know, make up the sort of central, um, the, the sort of central, um, um, constellation of characters. Right. So, right. so on one hand, we have a <laughs> physicist priest with an adoptive daughter. On the other hand, we have a pope. And so the pope and the physicist priest both die at the beginning of the narrative. Um, wh- the physicist priest has the adoptive daughter. The pope has a, an IVF produced, um, son who, and, and so in a sense, um, you know, these two sort of, Scions who are somehow the children, the Camerlengo and, um, and Vittoria are sort of, in some <sighs> sense, the children of both science and religion in the way that they're sort of set up in the right. story. Right. I think we can add to this, um, some other forms of succession that are hanging out in the background and that are going to get carried forward. So, um, the kind of physics that is done, um, at CERN is particle physics and and uh, which has a kind of pride of place in um, 20th century uh, science and in particular, you know, is is related to the military triumphs of nuclear weapons. Right. So the f- physics has a kind of unique prestige um, and a particular kind of physics and particle accelerators and particle physics are emblems of that. But. Vittoria Vetra is some other kind of physicist. She is a, and we're, we're not told much about it, studies entanglement of some kind, some quantum, vaguely new age thing. It doesn't have to do with fish in some way. She's a bio, bio entanglement physicist. Um, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I think it, that's right. It's, um, and so there's a kind of succession of types of knowledge that are, that are hanging out in the background here as well that are going to become important as Dan Brown starts to think about the shift from 20th century politics, international politics and violence to, um, the end of the millennium and the, and whatever it is that obtains in the 21st century. So you can sort of add that to the, to the family, to the family drama that's going on here. And so early on, we have these two, um, these two kind of procedures, which are set in parallel to each other, which are both institutional procedures. One of which is the initiation of papal succession, right? And the creation of the conclave. And then in parallel to that, we have, the production of antimatter, right? right? And, um, I don't know if you have thoughts about, you know, th- th- there's sort of this claim that antimatter is, is somehow, at least some characters in this believe going to reconcile science and religion. Right. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that sort of, cause that, that really, um, is a, a crucial, 
point at the beginning is again that you have these two characters who are in some way a kind of cross fertilization between and and again we should think here about the way that the earlier novels um sort of um enact this cross fertilization between science and the state right and so here similarly we have a sort of cross fertilization between science and a, a sort of ideological and institutional power. Um, but, you know, then antimatter is supposed to in some way be a, another potential point of, of sort of um, a, a, a way for science and religion to find, you know, a, a way for the two magisteria to overlap. Right. So, I mean, we're told that it's unclear how this is supposed to work, that, um, that, that all, all the secrets of the universe will be unpacked by, um, by studying antimatter and, um, including sort of moral ones. So, um, And the production of antimatter is related, um, among other things, to um, geo, you know, geopolitical stability through energy production. So its tremendous destructive power is, is also imagined as an environmentally safe energy source um, and and also as a revenue generator for CERN at one point. Uh, all of the concerns about the motivations for science get um get put on get put on the table and um and it's it's and it's worth noticing here that you know as we talked about with um digital fortress there's a kind of i mean as a you know i sort of argued that digital fortress is it pretty much explicitly about the sort of virilio and um information bomb right which it explicitly links back to um the atom bomb through the um, protagonist, uh, Ensei Tankado being a survivor of Hiroshima, right? Um, a sort of Hiroshima baby. And so we have, um, again here, interestingly, this, um, antimatter does seem to portend the, the return of the sort of moral ambiguities around, um, around the atom. Right. That, um, right. on one hand, it's, it's seen as this immensely, you know, potent and creative force, but on the other hand, it's seen as this, um, as this immensely destructive force. Now, early on in the story, of course, um, a canister of this antimatter that has been successfully produced, and this is where the sort of two institutional procedures overlap, is stolen from CERN and then taken to Vatican City. And then is um, captured by a CCTV camera, but the um, because of the vastness of Vatican City, they are unable to figure out where it is. So a great deal of the plot revolves around um, them attempting to, ident- to identify the location of the canister of antimatter, which because um, you know it is is being sort of held in suspension in this canister, but um, within 12 hours, the battery will run out um, and cause a sort of massive explosion that will obliterate the Vatican. <clears throat> right. Um, 
one more one more word about antimatter. Antimatter is um is just directly equated with God. Um uh God, Buddha, the force, Yahweh, the singularity, the unicity point, call it whatever you like. The result is the same. Science and religion support the same truth. Pure energy is the father of creation. And then later Vittoria adds, God created everything in opposite symmetry, perfect balance, um, matter and antimatter. So it turns out that the contents of uh, particle physics um, at CERN are um, are going to be importantly uh, the same as um, the sort of trivial remarks of um, world religions as processed by um, the United States in the latter half of the 20th century. And, um, and also they're, they're going to mimic also the, the relations between the sexes as, as um, like idealized by, by Dan Brown in important ways. So it really all is contained in this central metaphor. But so I guess we, we also need to, once the antimatter um, is hidden, maybe we, do we need to say a few words about the sort of central plot devices for the Langdon novels, which concern Robert Langdon's discipline, symbology. I mean, one could and should ask themselves, what the fuck is some guy from Harvard um, doing running all over France and Switzerland and England in these books um, and uh, solving uh, crimes and um, managing the succession of the Catholic church, church right? <laughs> right. So it does, um, you know, in an interesting way, it does place the the American elite back in this position of sort of, yeah. I mean, on one hand, interestingly, brokering peace in the sort of wars, you know, there, there's a sort of threatened reemergence of the something like the wars of religion. Right. Right. Um, where, as we'll see, you know, we go back in this narrative to Galileo, um, you know, that. So let's let's just briefly explain how Langdon comes into the story. So basically um, he comes into the story because of the appearance of an ambigram on the body of um, on the body of the physicist priest Leonardo Vetra and the ambigram reads Illuminati. So um, strangely, he is, uh, he is contacted to authenticate the ambigram, um, which, you know, kind of goes back to, what we did discuss somewhat in the first episode, but is important to reiterate. So what's important about a, a symbol in the sense of the discipline of symbology is that it is, um, it is unique and can be authenticated. So in other words, um, a symbol, unlike let's say language is not simply interchangeable or replaceable, right? So right. Um, this symbol that appears on the branded on the chest of this murdered um, physicist is um, you know, they, they hire Langdon or they bring in Langdon. This is the, I believe the Swiss guard of Vatican city or no, sorry. It's, I think the, 
the head of the um of of CERN actually brings him in initially. Never mind. So he's he's brought in to authenticate the ambigram, right? Which means to prove that or to verify that um, the fact of this brand having been impressed on the chest of this murder victim um, reveals the actual existence of the Illuminati, right? So in other words, because um, because this brand, uh, the ambigram on this brand is regarded as unique and irreplaceable, um, it the very fact of its appearance proves the existence of this, you know, age old, possibly mythical secret society. Yeah. Now, and, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. And, and no, and, and I think, you know, as, as generally happens with Langdon, as we talked about before, you know, what's important is that he, he lives in this world of these symbols, but for as long as he is in academia, it's important for him to be agnostic as to their actual referential um, value. So in other words, he, um, he, he believes that, you know, there is or may be a history of these ambigrams appearing, but um, he also believes that the Illuminati have ceased to exist. And therefore it's essentially impossible that this could be the case or, or the fact that it appears um, disrupts his assumption that the Illuminati has um, have disappeared. Right. Right. It uh, Langdon, the Langdon novels is are we get for the first time explicit speculation about linguistics and the philosophy of language from um, from Langdon, and and it's rather extensive actually. It um, how symbols work um, are are theorized by him. He's like um, you know uh, the the evil. The evil meme, it's like evil Roland Bart be like, you know, signs refer directly to objects or something. He's, um, he's a kind of bizarro opposite of semioticians and, and it's, it's down to a lot of the details, right? And they're, they're, they're discussed, um, over and over again in this, in this ad hoc way. These, um, the way these, not ad hoc, but, um, uh, novel and specific to this kind of, uh, narrative. Um, it's right. So, so Langdon is dragged in. The ambigram is, uh, remarkable. What is an ambigram? An ambigram is some sort of design that reads, um, the same forward and then you flip it over and it reads the same backward. Um, these are not hard to produce and yet, um, they are declared over and over again to be impossible to write and to require some kind of esoteric knowledge of uh, writing um, in order to in order to make. And it's it's this impossibility that authenticates the existence of the Illuminati when when Langdon is presented with the ambigram. Right. It It can't be yet it is. So the Illuminati must be not. A rumor, Langdon's um, belief that it just sort of doesn't matter what happens out in the world because we're only interested in studying symbols back at Harvard and doing some swimming or whatever it is that Langdon does in his free time. Um, uh, Those things, um, that world is disrupted by the the existence of uh, actual things out in the world. 
And the result of that is that you have to go get the things, right? Symbols compel you to hunt down the thing that they refer to. And, um, you know, th- this, so this drives is Langdon and the other protagonists from one symbol to the next, um, through the plot of these books. And, and I will note that, you know, there's something obviously ludicrous about this sort of logic regarding the ambigrams being a sort of proof of the real existence of those who uniquely created them. Yet what's strange to me is that, and this goes back to, um, you know, the central theme, particularly of digital fortress, which is then carried over into, um, into the Langdon novels, i.e. cryptography is that, you know, in, in cryptographic terms, there's a way in which this can make sense and here you might think of things like, I mean, here you might think basically of the blockchain, right? Right. So in other words, um, you know, if, if you imagine the ambigram as something like an NFT, right? Well, the, the function of it is simply to, um, it, it, it embodies some sort of work that, um, that proves its uniqueness, right? Yeah. And so the logic of, um, the, the sort of logic of proof here, does have a certain um, relevance in the sort of computational cryptographic context, but it's being sort of bizarrely applied to cultural history, right? And sort of aesthetics and things like that. Um, I mean, Langdon, Langdon being kind of an idiot or then the books being bad uh, in this way um, is, can be distracting. And I think in the past, we we have been distracted by this. I know earlier I brought up other um, podcasts that are interested in in Dan Brown's works, and one thing that they are they are really focused on is sort of page by page um, making fun of how stupid this is. And it may be stupid. Dan Brown may be a good or a bad writer, but in an important sense, he's he's not a bad writer. He's um, he's he's produced immensely popular. Um, material that condenses, uh, the unconscious of the millennium and, uh, and, ge- and I- geopolitics and science and, <laughs> and he, uh, it, in a, in a remarkably concise way and, um, and his, his, his being a bad writer allows a kind of dismissal of these things that, um, that overlooks their actual content here. So it's, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's also important to just revisit a, a claim I made before about digital fortress in particular, which is that, you know, the way that, as you brought up, this resembles the kind of, um, you know, a sort of in, inverted semiotics. Um, right. and as we talked about, sort of in the introductory discussion last time. I mean, the way I would say that the way in which this relates to postmodernity is precisely the way in which something like um, the blockchain relates to digital fiat currency, right? Right. <laughs> because um, if we think of, you know, it, I I would sort of ground everything that is associated with postmodernity is sort of in some sense unimaginable without the end of the gold standard, right? Um, yeah, the the exactly. floating of currency values and the, and the digitization of currency um, is, is essentially this kind of um, unboundedness and infinite exchangeability um, that, 
you know, becomes sort of in the cultural sphere manifest as, as the postmodern, right? And so what is, um, you know, what is the blockchain? Well, it's, it's basically an attempt to, um, to create some kind of fixed value, right? Amidst this, so, some kind of intrinsically and objectively fixed value, right? Amidst this kind of, um, expanding postmodern aporia. Yeah. So I, I think this is important to note because it's, I mean, first of all, because Dan Brown really does foresee much of that um, set of concerns in Digital Fortress in particular. Yeah. But but here what he's trying to do in a sense, and, and there's a way in which this effort is redoubled in the actions of one of the characters in the novel, which we'll get into, but he is essentially reactivating, as I said, something like the wars of re- the sort of early modern wars of religion, right? So here if we go back to the point that these are post-Cold War novels, and these, at least Angels and Demons, is still a novel of the end of history period, right? It's In other yeah. words, it's a pre-9-11 novel, although just barely, which which proves important. And it is concerned, I would say, with the kind of um, Leotardian, you know, incredulity, incredulity towards meta-narratives. And it's concerned with, in a sense, reasserting some kind of organizing antagonism that can make sense of the sort of um, fracturing and um, sort of fragmenting quality of the world, right? And then at the same time, it juxtaposes that with this kind of dream, again, very sort of end of history dream of of, um, perfect union, right? Perfect union between... Again, the, the previously non-overlapping magisteria of religion and science, um, you know, perfect unity between the interests of the Vatican and the interests of CERN and the interests of, you know, the American intelligentsia and, and so on. So, you know, what, what's going on here is that we have essentially this idea that the Illuminati have returned, right? And they are, they have kidnapped the preferiti, the, um, the four uh, most likely successors to the papacy and have also planted this antimatter within Vatican city. So this represents essentially the opposite of that sort of, you know, we are the world dream of, of harmonious unity um, with this return of sort of, um, I mean, there's this book a few years ago, like return of the strong gods, right? This, this return of an absolute and unbridgeable antagonism that sort of goes back to the, the narr- basically the fundamental enlightenment narrative, right? right? So where the, the Illuminati are the militant wing of enlightenment science of an atheistic enlightenment science, right? Scientific materialism. And their aim is simply to literally lay physical waste to um, the Vatican and the papacy. Right. And so this, um, you know, throughout most of the novel appears to be what is going on. Right. We have, you know, we have suddenly left the end of history and um, there is a, a direct sort of war being waged between um between these two opposing camps, right? That there's, there's no truce anymore. But interestingly, this war is mediated through this, um, these sort of symbolic expressions, right? And that is Langdon's role 
in this, right? Um, in other words, the, you know, it, it reminds me of, um, these questions about, um, 9-11, which we'll get into later. You know, after 9-11, there were these sort of psycho, psychoanalytic and related theorists sort of debating, like, you know, was 9-11 a sort of attack on the level of the real fundamentally or on the level of the imaginary or on the level of the symbolic? Well, you know, what's important with the Illuminati here is that they are, um, apparently, I, I mean, on one hand, they are simply, um, killing, you know, they're killing these, uh, cardinals and thus imperiling the succession of the papacy as well as imperiling the physical existence of the Vatican itself, right? Um, you know, which is an institution that is, and, and I, again, I think this is important, right? It's an institution that is uniquely tied to place, right? And so its destruction portends a sort of total disappearance, right? It, it, it cannot exist outside of the particular place in which it is located. And at the same time, um, but at the same time, the Illuminati, um, are, are attached to this, um, and again, ostensibly the Illuminati are attached to this kind of, um, this symbolic war, right? That takes the form or symbological war, right? That takes the form of these elaborate, that the, the killings are not simply assassinations, right? They're elaborate ritual acts, right? Where the, basically each of the cardinals is killed in a way that, I mean, uh, and interestingly, this is almost a sort of serial, you know, you can imagine this as like a serial killer movie, like seven or something like that, right? Where yeah. the cardinals are killed in such a way that they, um, they, they are linked to the four elements, right? Um, earth, fire, water, and air. Yes. And so, you know, so one of them is essentially like suffocated with dirt, um, et cetera. One of the, you know, one of them is burned alive, um, one of them has his lungs punctured. So these are all sort of spectacular public assassinations, but they also take the form of a, um, a sort of ritualized sacrificial killing. Right. Right. It's, um, and the, let's see, we, there, there's also the question here in terms of uh, symbolic war between um, the sort of public perception of uh, CERN. Um, the there there are concerns in this about um, sort of CERN's public image and um, uh, against a sort of largely imaginary background of conflict between. Um, between CERN and the Catholic Church. Um, and so the, 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 the symbolic warfare happening in a series of assassinations here is, is also duplicated through the media, right? So there's a, there's a concern about, um, uh, uh, symbolic warfare in a very modern and present way that is that is happening as well that has to do with sort of background pieces about funding and the operations of science um this appears uh um a couple of times throughout this narrative um so should we who's doing the killing here right let's (laughs) let's let's do the spoiler so uh, okay so 
Assassin. As with, right. So first of all, we have, and this is an interesting contrast between the, the pre 9-11 book, Angels and Demons, and the post 9-11, um, movie of Angels and Demons, which is that in the pre 9-11 novel, the, the actual, I mean, so on one hand, you have this apparent, and again, this is sort of the, the return of the strong gods theme. So you have this apparent driving antagonism between sort of militant, militant atheist science and religion, right? right? But at the same time, the killings are actually being carried out by someone who, you know, we, whose activities we sort of follow and whose internal monologues we even follow, who is annoyingly referred to throughout as the Hassassin. And is, is, um, uh, is an Arab Muslim. And he, um, you know, I don't recall how, I mean, he doesn't seem to know exactly who his masterminds are, who are giving him orders. But of course he's happy to be, um, you know, killing off representatives of the, the enemy religion. That's right. And so it does, um, interestingly, and, and so it's, it's important to note that you know, we have this kind of, um, you know, he's, he's adding in, I mean, on one hand, so we have this, um, this novel kind of emerging around the same time as the new atheism. Um, and at the same time, we have, um, the, the sort of emergent concerns with Islamic terror, right? But again, right. pre 9-11. Right. And basically this whole, this whole set of, um, Elements where you have this kind of sinister, but also sort of prurient, um, Muslim fanatic, you know, killing these cardinals is, is taken out of the story in the movie version, which comes out post 9-11, I think because it would just be so obviously racist. And, um, yeah. And so, I mean, so more than um, that, more than that, because it, it, it's, it's, it wouldn't have passed the, um, I mean, I actually, I think it, I think it might conceivably have passed the Hollywood filters in those early, early days of post nine 11, um, uh, sort of panic about the United States, but quickly, quickly, no, but there are other reasons why, why the assassin, the, the sort of, um, Islamic character, you know, um, depraved, um, Muslim guy prone to Oriental, uh, perversions. And, uh, he's, he, he spends a lot of time sort of abusing prostitutes in, uh, in, in Angels and Demons in the book. And, um, and it's not just that this is unacceptable for our contemporary audience. It's that, um, this kind of uh religious conflict where there's a kind of outside and a politics that might really matter is gonna have to disappear in Dan Brown's novels um um as we as you move into the Da Vinci Code proper. So there's internal to the book, there's something that is ultimately gonna be unacceptable about this um uh about this kind of this kind of character um there's there's too much politics attached to him there's too much history there's too much real world relevance and he's too easy to identify as an actor in the universe of the reader right so you know that's precisely what makes him appealing in as in in angels and demons as an antagonist and um but those appeals will have to be 
transferred elsewhere um ultimately when we when we when we leave behind um this sort of pre-symbological world of explicit conflict but i like your idea about seeing your idea that we should actually see uh dan brown is like um, as one of the new atheists, he could be like the fifth horseman of the apocalypse <laughs> along with, uh, you know, Dawkins and Harris and, uh, weren't they called the four horsemen at some point? Yeah, okay. yeah. Dennett yeah. and, uh, Dennett and, and, um, who's the other one? Hitchens. Hitchens, yeah. Yeah. Rip, rip. Yeah. Um, Hitchens. So, and... well, it, I guess, you know, part of what's interesting also here is that in effect what we have in Angels and Demons, then, so in the movie basically you have, a weirdly sort of Edward Snowden looking, but European guy who's right. doing all the assassinations. And he's sort of plausibly, uh, um, a sort of, I don't know, new atheist militant yeah. terrorist, I guess. Yeah. But then of course, as we'll get into, it turns out he's just sort of a hired hand, but, um, as is the assassin. But, um, I guess the other interesting point here is that Brown really is summoning up this kind of, at least initially appears to be summing up this kind of alliance of the sort that, you know, the, that sort of, um, right wingers, you know, were, um, interested in conjuring up kind of in the two thousands, right. Which was this kind of alliance between, um, you know, fanatical Islam and sort of godless atheism. Right? Yep. Sort of, yes. And so this idea that there was sort of a, um, you know that that the two the two enemies were on one hand um you know again sort of secular atheism and on the other hand godless islam you know is is something that you know throughout much of the story dan brown seems to be conjuring up right because the illuminati yes. have hired this islamic um this uh you know this muslim to uh, carry out their to do their dirty work for them but um, always not as is always the case with Brown, always not as it seems, right? Because, right. um, I, I guess importantly, Langdon is actually wrong about something pretty fundamental at, at the beginning, which is that the, the seals of the Illuminati, the appearance of the ambigramic seals of the Illuminati do not, in fact, prove their continued existence. Right, right. Um, so throughout this story we have, um, so, you know, again, Brown is fundamentally interested in sort of mapping out power dynamics within institutions, right? So we yes. have on one hand, the, um, the various figures in the Vatican trying to figure out how to navigate the papal succession while under threat from the, um, you know, the, the, apparently Illuminati terrorists who have kidnapped for the Cardinals and have planted this antimatter sort of time bomb in the, somewhere in the catacombs of the Vatican. Right. So um, one of these figures is, as I mentioned before, the Chamberlain or Camerlengo, who um, is played by Ewan McGregor. In the, <laughs> um, and, you know, through much of the story, he comes across as this kind of reasonable, fair-minded moderate you know, he helps, he helps Langdon out, gives him access to the, um, Vatican archives, which, as it turns out, in one of the sort of, um, side plots is Langdon has been applying for access to the Vatican archives for some time and has been denied right. that access. So, interestingly, he must go into the Vatican archives and find this text by Galileo, 
in order to figure out the locations where he's trying to predict the locations where the cardinals will be ritualistically assassinated right because basically they'll be assassinated in the secret dens of the illuminati which are scattered throughout rome right and just going on slight tangent here but as is often the case in brown um the it turns out that the secret is found in a um some sort of marginalia inexplicably written in english by galileo because English is, of course, the international language of science, I suppose. But um, in any case, this is what, you know, leads him to the right place. So anyway, the camera lingo lets him, you know, get in the archives, seems to be helping him out, um, comes across as a sort of moderate and conciliatory, conciliatory figure. Um, in the, you know, typically Brownian sort of bizarre um, action-packed, denouement of the narrative the Camerlengo um basically they they finally find the antimatter canister just before it is to explode and thus killing everyone in the vatican and the the massive crowds gathered outside um you know to uh await news on the papal succession so the Camerlengo um you know turns out to be an experienced helicopter pilot and um, you know, <laughs> runs out, you know, there's some police helicopter out there. He runs out into, um, into, um, <clears throat> Vatican Square, uh, you know, jumps in the helicopter with the antimatter canister, you know, shoots straight up in the sky, tosses the canister out into the air, and then everyone thinks that he's been immolated up there, but, um, in fact, he parachutes down to safety and is sort of welcomed as a, a almost sort of new savior by the assembled masses, right? Right. So, um, you know, so it, it would seem at this point that he's the anointed successor and is going to become pope. However, um, you know, without getting too bogged down in details, Langdon has previously been handed a... Um, uh, camera with a video on it i believe right which um by the the um head of the swiss guards who is dying apparently having been um or apparently having tried to rescue the camerlengo from the illuminati right um so langdon in the midst of all this chaos watches this video and discovers that in fact what happened was the Who arrests and exposed the Camerlengo. And the Camerlengo killed him. And the right. Camerlengo also branded himself to make it look like he was being, um, killed by the Illuminati. So, the ultimate revelation is that there is in fact no Illuminati, right? That, um, the Illuminati is a sort of specter conjured up by, um, this power hungry figure within the Vatican in order to bring about his own succession and get rid of his rivals, right? The Cardinals. So, um, and it also turns out that um, the Camerlengo has sort of posed as a, um, has, has been posing as a sort of moderate within the Vatican, but, you know, part of what triggered his, um, his sort of, psychotic turn towards this bizarre scheme was 
he discovered that he was in fact the biological son of the Pope. Right. Because the Pope had been in constant, um, and also that the Pope had been in constant contact with the, um, with CERN and particularly with Leonardo Vetra. And that he and Leonardo Vetra were about to make some sort of announcement about the ultimate, um, reconciliation of science and religion due to the discovery of antimatter. Right. So the two things here are, um, first of all, you know, you have this kind of uncanny, succession in the form of biological reproduction through IVF um, within the paper, you know, within the institution of the papacy, which the Camerlengo is as who turns out to be a sort of crypto reactionary is horrified by um, because of the violent, you know, because he still sees it as a violation of the oath of celibacy and because he, um, you know, thinks that it means that the, the papacy has subordinated itself to, quote unquote science. And then second wants to prevent the sort of press conference in which, you know, the Vatican and CERN will announce that their um, interests and beliefs are ultimately aligned. Right. So, you know, in, in response to this and, you know, in response to something we can also get to that there is a kind of primal scene aspect of this, that when he, he discovers his true paternity um, and his true paternity was in fact not through copulation, but through a sort of immaculate conception, right? Right. Um, so it's like you, you discover your dad is the emissary of God and has begotten you through immaculate conception. Um, and this, um, you know, this, uh, discovery is too traumatic, right? And so in order to cover it up, you, um, you create this elaborate hoax in which the antagonism between the sort of old enlightenment era antagonism between science and religion is brought back into play. And you orchestrate this in order to, um, in order to bring about your own succession, right? That is essentially the Camerlengo's sort of motivation in all of this, as it turns out. Right. Right. It's, um, and so he's not unlike the, the figures in, um, you know, the figures of Pickering and, um, um, Strathmore in, um, in Angels, in, um, Deception Point and Digital Fortress, right? Because basically you have this, you know, apparent crisis within an institution, right? And the, um, the, the sort of most powerful figure within that institution, um, enacts this sort of bizarre scheme in order to supposedly, um, fortify the institution and assure his own place in it, right? Yes. Um, but, but it turns out that, you know, this is a symptom of the institution's kind of involution and sort of dangerous um, decadence, right? right, right and so it's right. in fact the the destruction of this figure that um, that can sort of bring about its renewal. And Langdon always has a sort of crucial role to play in this. It's hard not to see um, a kind of uh, woke lib take hiding in a lot of these institutional accounts, including the ones of Islamic sort of the role of Islamic terror here, where it 
it turns out that what appears to be external conflict is actually internal institutional decay, right? So the the specter of international terrorism is actually a product of, you know, a state actor's, you know, manipulation of the outside or something like that. And right. Or it's or it's basically Bush did 9-11. Right? It's Bush did 9-11. Um, exactly. And again, this is a this is a pre-9-11 novel, but yep. essentially the the concept of it is that this powerful figure within the Vatican brings about this, um, you know, brings about its near destruction in order to um, to reconsolidate its its power and sort of institutional stability. Right. The Bush the Bush so did nine eleven component of this is uh, is actually I think really important for a contemporary moment. Another reason why we're choosing now to talk about Dan Brown is that Dan Brown. This is all over these novels. He speaks uh, with a kind of fluency in the extremely popular language of conspiracy theories from the latter half of the twentieth century. I mean, there's. Um, We've got the Illuminati. We've got all kinds of secret societies. There, there's a kind of characteristic signaling that we talked about a little bit earlier. In that, you know, that that turns out that the code in the Galileo text that they have to hunt, you know, extract the secret in the Vatican archives, you know, turns out to be written in English. Right? It's not only the international language of science, but it's also unencoded for the reader. Right. So um, just as the passwords um, in all of Dan Brown's novels, you know, turn out to be radically simple three or somebody's name, you know, not not barely not even as complicated as a sort of typical password you know, as a birthday. They have to be something that where the encryption, the, the, the action of the, the action of encryption, the action of hiding things isn't really about cryptographic secrecy. It's um in, in any sort of technical sense, um, because the passwords are already written on the surface. And that's the way some conspiracy theory um, interpretation works, where the secret society can't help but emanate sort of codes here. And, you know, you can imagine the sort of OK symbol right here as a recent a recent case, but, but this goes, this goes everywhere. And Dan, Dan Brown, um, you know, incorporates these really seamlessly and plays with the, these kind of modes of thinking. In fact, his protagonist is in some sense a, like, um, expert in exactly this stuff, right? He's, if it weren't for the Harvard part, he'd be a kind of do your own research, uh, like internet, you know, amateur researcher. Um, and, uh, so, so this, this is all, I, I, I think, um, uh, turns out to be radically contemporary for, for us and, um, and, and is part of the overall appeal of Dan Brown and, um, and really is, is worth, is, I think it gets, it becomes a, in the past a vehicle for dismissing him, but we have entered a phase of, um, public discourse if, either of those words mean anything anymore where it's just much more likely that the truth of the political world is somehow better presented as a lie, as a conspiracy, maybe even as a joke than any kind of straightforward just presentation of the facts, right? The so convoluted is truth telling in um, by official experts and actors today that, um, that, uh, that the, the apparently fantastical versions of reality often seem to con- contain more truth than the, um, you know, contents of the science section of the New York Times. Um, so 
I, I it's um this is important because of the way that uh um Dan Brown is dismissed as kind of ridiculous, but is actually a kind of um uh, raises up a lot of sort of background conspiracy, I mean theory material. I, maybe we can talk about his relation to Lincoln, Bajit, and Lay at some point here when we get to the the next book, but he's he's drawing on pre-existing independent research in, in dramatic ways here um, to, and, and, and it really is novel to incorporate this stuff with uh, the sort of Tom Clancy-esque uh, techno thriller that is, is here in Angels and Demons. Okay. So yeah, sorry. That's going a little bit of far afield, but this, yeah, no, the, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the text demands it. <laughs> so. Right. Right. So, I mean, a few other things, I mean, the, so it's it's in you know so in in the first two novels basically we have secrecy um being coterminous with national security right so right. secrecy is or or at least should be coterminous with national security what the problem in digital fortress is sort of that it um you know that the possibilities of secrecy are escaping the bounds of the security state through the sort of um, popularization of cryptography, right? Um, right. and, and the availability of encryption tools. So, you know, we have, um, in the first novels, we have secrecy as basically the domain of the state, um, and particularly the American state. In, you know, the, the theme of secrecy remains paramount, but it, it sort of migrates to other areas because, first of all, you have, um, the first appearance of what will be you know, the, the repeated theme of, of these novels, which is the, the secret society, right? Right. Now it turns out that the secret society in, in Angels and Demons doesn't exist anymore, right? Um, the Illuminati are, are clearly stated to, to no longer exist, right? Um, on the other hand, we have the Vatican itself as a sort of, um, a, um, a sort of paragon of, of secrecy, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of, you know, the fact that they can't find the, the canister of antimatter is some, some idea of like, it's, it's sort of unknown to itself in some sense, right? It's, it's so kind of involuted and labyrinthine that it's, it's become non-transparent to itself, right? Um, and this, I think, is an important notion as well, right? Yeah. Which, which I think reflects back to the, the problems that, that the American state begins to face right and and it's the basically the problems of of both digital fortress and deception point is this state becoming you know these state institutions um becoming dysfunctional because they are no longer fully known to themselves right yeah and so one one way of figuring that is through the the secret society right which um in this context is sort of you know, it's, it's the, it's always the institution within the institution. So in this case, there's some idea that it's, it's somehow the, the underground, you know, version of CERN or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, but of course that, you know, turns out to be a kind of spectral projection, um, from within the Vatican. But, you know, the, the other, the other point here, I think that, you know, so the, the being unknown to itself, you know, it's, it, it's an institution that is, uh, that is, be, you know, is or has become unconscious, right? That, or that, that has an unconscious, right? And it's also important then that, um, 
you know, the secret society is always the space of a sort of, of jouissance, right? Of, of a sort of excess enjoyment. And here I think, you know, again, and the, the way that the symbol itself is tied to the phenomenon of, of excessive enjoyment or jouissance, right? That, um, you know, you're, you're not only, um, assassinating cardinals, you're, you're branding them, right? And you're, you're engaged in this kind of perverse sort of serial killer like. Yes. Um, sequence of actions. And so again, you know, in the novel of Angels and Demons, you have the assassin who is himself a figure of the, the kind of relationship between prohibition and enjoyment, right? Because he's on one hand, a sort of religious fanatic, but then on the other hand is sort of a, a pervert and, you know, is, is, um, you know, brutalizing prostitutes and so on. Right. So, so there is this kind of, um, you know, and, and I mean, it's interesting, right? The assassin, term comes from, you know, Hassani Sabah, right? The, the, um, the sort of, uh, you know, ancient Arab secret society of assassins, right? Who are, who are also, you know, brought up endlessly in like William S. Burroughs as, you know, have, and, you know, William S. Burroughs, um, they're, they're interestingly, um, you know, supposedly operate under this, um, mantra of, um, nothing is, nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Yes. Um, and so, you know, th- there is this kind of odd relationship between secrecy and, and enjoyment, right? A- excessive enjoyment. And right. so again, these murders are sexualized, right? In their, um, in their, their sort of excess. And this sexualization is also in a way kind of concurrent with their, their symbolization, right? That right. Right. They have to be symbolically media or symbologically mediated. Precisely insofar as they're also sort of eroticized, um, you know, acts of, of right. sad, of sort of sadism, right, right? In the, in the, um, in the strict sense. Um, and so sadomasochism is beginning to come into it and will continue to be important. But, you know, these, these secret societies are always, you know, they're always the, the, the space of the institutional unconscious. Right. That um, is also the space of it, of enjoyment. And and this is this gets I mean, part part of the genius of Dan Brown is that this gets duplicated at the level of symbology itself. So in Angels and Demons, we have um, uh, a kind of apparent textual secret. There's this issue of the Illuminati diamond. Right. Okay, so, um, uh, you know, Langdon is who still believes the Illuminati exists, right? The Illuminati are going to disappear, but they, they had always, you know, wielded tremendous power as bankers, right? There's a conspiracy dimension of this. They own gold and, and then he speculates they even possess the most valuable gem on earth, the, the Illuminati diamond, the diamond of enormous proportions. Okay. Well, the Illuminati diamond turns out not to be a diamond, but a particular way of arranging the, ambigram brands earth air fire and water into a um a diamond pattern right which is then pressed into the flesh so the 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 mo- the money um as a motivation for things and as and as a source of enjoyment disappears the object that you're chasing the secret disappears into into the text and this 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 pattern of apparent secrecy and then um and then the referent 
vanishing um, is one of the core tricks here we have interpretively that the Dan Brown exercises, and it's a kind of dramatization of entering into a um, moment of um, where public communication, uh, the communicative public sphere disappears, and there's everything is mediated by signs and only signs that refer to each other and to and to themselves and to nothing else, right? So, you know that that's that's appearing as an issue of enjoyment and pleasure here, um, both in the text and at the level of the text, and when the text theorizes itself. Yes. So, and here we should also get into. So we have you know always this juxtaposition, which although which becomes um, sort of evanescent as the as the sequence of Langdon novels proceeds. But, um, you know, we, we always have this juxtaposition between the perverse enjoyment of this, the secret, which is associated with the secret society, which is, yeah. um, you know, which is always man. Uh, well, this isn't quite true, actually, the, the, you know, the priory of sign, but, you know, <laughs> at least in at this phase and, and later when the Freemasons come into it are, you know, are they're coded as male, right. Yeah. And they're, and there's sort of, you know, again, this this notion of a sort of um, immaculate lineage of male succession, right? right? Where you, you know, which is fundamentally embodied in the Vatican, um, where you have sort of two thousand years of of non non biological institutional reproduction, right? Right. right. As the object of fascination, but then it's sort of under undergirded by this substrate of sort of perverse enjoyment, right? Um, and so we have, you know, the, the secret society is the space of perverse enjoyment, you know, sadomasochistic enjoyment. Um, and then in contrast, we have, I mean, so it's, it's first of all important to note that, you know, the Americanness of Robert Langdon is in part his, um, you know, he... <laughs> On one hand, his function is in theory to kind of bring what was dark into the light, right? To kind of, um, as his, his, his function is as a kind of popularizer and expositor of that which is arcane and previously enshrouded in, you know, the mists of time and secrecy, right? But right. then as we discussed before, he always has this problem of what you know, what to reveal and not to reveal. So the main secret that he doesn't reveal at the end of Angels and Demons is that, that the camera Lengo was the architect of the whole scheme, right? Because right. to do so would be disastrously discrediting to the Vatican, right? And so basically he helps the Vatican undertake a cover up whereby they, um, you know, make it seem as if the camera Lengo perished in his, um, heroic attempts to, um, and successful attempt, you know, cast the antimatter into the, into the sky in order to prevent the destruction of the Vatican. And then, you know, basically they, they claim that he perished from his injuries. And other than that, that, the, that the assassinations were, you know, the act of a sort of, you know, of a, 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 a lone madman or whatever. So, you know, so he helps the Vatican preserve its integrity by, um, or, or preserve its reputation by, um, by, uh, helping them, you know, not divulge 
these potentially discrediting secrets, right? So, you know, he's, he, he's always struggling with this, um, you know, this kind of American, um, you know, impulse towards kind of elucidation and demystification. And the way that he gets, um, the way that he gets entangled, so to speak, with these institutions that essentially enlist him in the cover up, right? Right. And so then the other, the other point here is that his successful enlistment and execution of the cover up is generally tied or is tied in the, in the first two novels to his own accession to non-perverse, um, you know, heteronormative sexual enjoyment. Right. right. So this, you know, he, at the end of, um, you know, as occurs at the ends of both deception point and digital fortress, we have, um, you know, the, the male and female leads Langdon and Victoria, get it on right and the chapter is is pretty horrible to read um, but it's in a way you know langdon's most kind of successful sex sexual conquest they will become kind of more and more tenuous as as the series goes on right but his getting with the hot italian physicist is sort of his it's it's the height of his um of his um you know, his, his sort of sex, it's his sexual peak. It yeah. Would seem, right. Um, it's, we, we have to, we, we, we have, it is, it is terrible to read and yet we have to read it. And, um, even there at the height of Langdon's sexual success and, um, there's, you, you can feel it beginning to, um, uh, slip away. So imagine the, um, 10 out of 10 smoke show, Vittoria, Vetra, um, and Langdon. They're in, they're in the hotel. They've just ordered a massive amount of room service. I believe everything on the menu. And, um, when all the food was eaten, Langdon retired to the edge of his bed where he sat alone turning the Illuminati diamond over and over in his hands, making repeated comments about the miracle of its symmetry. Vittoria stared at him, her confusion growing to an obvious frustration. You find that ambigram terribly interesting, don't you? She demanded. Langdon nodded, mesmerizing. Would you say it's the most interesting thing in this room? Langdon scratched his head, making a show of pondering it. Well, there is one thing that interests me more. All right. Okay. So, um, and then he makes a crack about, uh, her research in bio entanglement and, um, and they have a short discussion, um, about whether or not neutrinos have mass and are Catholic. Um, and so even here, uh, he he can't help but be more seduced by um by textual concerns that are you know f- fundamentally um uh um sort of homoerotic perhaps at first but then pushed further and simply sort of autoerotic and then nothing at all or something right and um uh he's not He's already distracted. Um, he's too busy, um, you know, um, doing his own research to get a girlfriend. And uh, right, right here at the at the height of his success. 
Yeah, and so that's, um, you know, again, that's about the best he does, and yeah. it sort of gets worse. He gets more and more sort of incelified as the series goes right. on, right? Which I think is, you know, it's it's important in light of because it relates to this whole problem of institutional succession, right? right. Where exactly you have, and by the way, I think this is the only remark that Zizek has ever made about Dan Brown. This point that, you know, in, in Angels and Demons, he's, um, you know, he gets it on with Victoria, but then, you know, after that, he really never manages to fuck again. Um, and so anyway, but, you know, the thing I think is interesting here is that what we have enacted in the sort of unions that conclude, um, th- that conclude and, um, Deception Point and Digital Fortress is this kind of, um, this possibility of, of the sort of, um, as you said, sort of everything going back to its place, but the sort of harmonious relations of science and the state being restored. Yeah. And yeah. so, and that is actually directly figured in the probability of sort of heterosexual marriage and reproduction between right. the two characters who respectively represent now, you know, sort of knowledge academia on one hand and the state on the other hand. And so and this... This this is a, a fantasy of the successful propagation of the American elite, right? Right. I mean, and one way to think about sexual success, um, what you know, wh- where where does balance, harmony, and reproduction go um, when it leaves the lines, right? When you're no longer, when there's no longer a um, uh, um, a sort of marital sexual um, uh, success, it, it, it gets transferred to other institutions and other places with varying degrees of success, right? So that's going to be some explicitly discussed in the, in the Da Vinci Code. And then it's, will continue into the, into the later novels that, um, that hopefully we'll talk about in, in future, in future episodes here. I was, um, I was just speculating on, one of the effects of this kind of reading, right? You, once you absorb, um, the symbological narrative in the way that we have, um, you, there's a tendency to yourself become a kind of actor in, in Dan Brown's, um, in Dan Brown's novels. So you, you start to see how these novels work, how the action of symbology functions. And then you start to see it everywhere in all kinds of cultural products from, um, the past 20 years and you, you get kind of, um, uh, sucked back in. There's, there's a moment in, um, I think it's in angels and demons and not in the Da Vinci code where, where, uh, Robert Langdon speculates about the, a professional hazard of sim- symbologists, which is to, um, to find meaning where there isn't any, which is, um, at the one, on the one hand, a kind of statement of his, uh, you know, distance from the real world and his enmeshment in a world of pure signs, but is also a kind of, um, way of, uh, distracting you from the actual function of the text and the way that it gets into the reader where you yourself, um, become, become a kind of symbologist. And, um, that, that, that has happened to us even with our supposedly, um, sophisticated uh you know backgrounds in critical theory um uh we we see the the pattern of symbology duplicated all all over the place and um 
and can't help but chase it down in society at large. So there's a kind of way in which we've been, we've been captured by, by the symbological narrative. And it's important to remember just how popular the contents of, um, of the conspiracies presented in these novels were, um, outside outside of Dan Brown's novels themselves. Right? 80 million copies of the Da Vinci Code are, are sold. And for a while, it was the um, you know, second best-selling book behind J.K. Rowling in, in English. Uh, for uh, and, and it sparked an entire sort of secondary literature um, uh, that, you know, like the, 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 that was about decoding the code that Dan Brown already decoded, right? So... Um, and, 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 and sparked a kind of return to some of the texts that, that Dan Brown was, was drawing on, um, and that he denies he's drawing on. So there, there's a kind of play with fact and fiction that he sets up, right? At the, characteristically at the beginning of these novels, there's, um, a kind of, uh, uh, you know, a disavowal of, claims to facticity um where you know a, a, as they must for legal reasons they say you know this is just uh fiction and then the opening of the da vinci code is uh, fact colon the priory of zion a european secret society founded in 1099 is a real organization you know the first the first sentence um of the book and um so the these claims to um to factualness, uh, are, are then kind of denied by Brown and, um, become, um, and denied by the reader in, in popular form who consumes other, uh, sort of, um, Da Vinci Code adjacent texts and, um, also get, um, rejected by us as the critic insofar as we start to, find um brownian logic um at at work everywhere in society so um this 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 process um of the entire world becoming um uh what is what does dan brown say or what does Lang, langdon say he says a, a coherent symbolic set he has is a phrase that langdon uses when he's talking about um kind of meta symbology um and what a coherent symbolic set is is the same sign appearing over and over again right this this is this is one of the characteristic features of um sort of uh full bore symbology is that all, all signs actually mean the same thing and appear everywhere um so right. it's, it's it's yeah yeah so i think it's worth um, in light of what you brought up about facticity and its its general, you know, assertion and pattern of sort of assertion and disavowal in these novels, um, I kind of wanted to revisit some of the the background of the the, the central narrative of the Da Vinci Code because it's quite strange. Um, so, as you mentioned previously, Brown's immediate source text was um, this. 1982, I believe, book called Holy Blood, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, which was written by three British authors. And I think prior to that was a BBC. I mean, one of them had also created a BBC um, series on this story of the, the Priory of Zion. 
Um, and then it, it became the book. And then Brown was sued by these authors, um, for plagiarism basically. And, um, the suit failed. Um, and so, you know, that, that raises an interesting question about the sort of, um, proprietary status of these, these, these stories and assertions. Um, so it, it's relatively, um, I mean, there, there's a good amount of, of information you can find out about this. Um, and it's, I, I, I will only give the broad strokes, but it's a very bizarre story and I encourage people to look into it more. So. Do your own research. Um, do your own research, exactly. So Holy Blood, Holy Grail was, um, itself, the story of, um, there, I mean, interestingly, you know, they sued Brown for plagiarism, but in fact, um, one of them, um, I'm trying to remember, it's Bajent, Lee, and, Lincoln. Lincoln. So I believe it's Lincoln, um, was on holiday in France and came across, came across this book called L'Ordre de Rennes, um, The Gold of Rennes, which was by a writer named Gérard de Sede. So, um, this was actually his source for, for much of this material. So he, you know, it, it was not in fact original to Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Um, so Gerard de Sede is a very bizarre character. He, um, was a student of Gaston Bachelard. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting one. Um, he was a Trotskyist. He hung out with, um, with the Surrealists in Paris. Um, and he actually, you know, he was, you know, on the far left and, Subsequent to the Second World War, moved to Yugoslavia as a sort of ideological sympathizer of Titoism. So he has this odd kind of, you know, relatively typical sort of intellectual background for uh, French intellectuals of his of his generation and political background. Um, and so uh, Desed, um writes this, um, you know writes this uh text which claims it's it's quite elaborate and not worth going into in 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 detail but um it it has to do with a priest who is named Sonier who as it turns out is the name of um the the sort of grandmaster of the priory of Zion who's murdered at the beginning of the Da Vinci Code so Brown cribs his name from Holy Blood Holy Grail um, he was a real person, uh, Sonier was, and he basically was this priest who, um, in the, I believe, late 19th century kind of did this elaborate, um, kind of renovation of the, the church, uh, where he was parish priest. And th- there was speculation about where his money came from. And basically the claim was that he had discovered this buried treasure. So this buried treasure was, it was claimed, you know, linked to these secret societies going back to the, going back to Catharism and, and further, right? Right. And so this was, you know, sort of the starting point of this, this narrative. But basically, um, so, you know, drawing out of this, this kind of set of local legends and narratives, um, um, he, uh, that is to say, said, uh, the, the, the author of the, the Gold of Ren, which was the sort of, um, main influence on Holy Blood, Holy Grail, um, you know, tells this whole story about this entity called the Priory of Zion, which supposedly was kind of holding onto these secrets, 
um, that dated back to the, the Merovingian line in sort of, um, you know, very early medieval France. So the, the Merovingian, um, um, you know, line of royal succession. So once again, the, the question of, of institutional succession is, is key here. Um, and basically it gets even more bizarre because he, um, was actually, um, drawing a lot of these ideas from a, a couple of other people. That is to say, DeSed was one of whom was in contrast to him, who was a leftist, a sort of ultra reactionary who had been a sort of, you know, collaborator with the Vichy regime and so on, and whose name was Pierre Plantard, who's mainly known as sort of a forger and, and hoaxer. Um, but Pierre Plantard, um, claimed to himself be a direct descendant of the Merovingian line of kings. Um, and so he was basically a kind of neo-monarchist, um, who, you know, believed in the restoration of the, the French monarchy. Um, and then his collaborator, oddly, was another um, surrealist named Philippe de Cherizet, who was also associated with um, Alfred Jarry and, um, and pataphysics and so on. Um, so basically what you have here is this kind of odd collaboration between this reactionary, um, you know, who is actually, again, like directly politically involved in Vichy and so on, um, who basically created this sort of hoax in order to, um, essentially what, what they did was they inserted documents into the archives of the French National Library, um, which claimed to attest to the real existence of the Priory of Zion and the continuation of the Merovingian line. So we have an odd convergence here of on one hand, this, you know, actual, um, reactionary neo-monarchist who, you know, carried out this hoax in order to um, supposedly sort of ratify his his claims about his own genealogy and about the continuation of this, the most ancient, you know, monarchical line in France. Um, and these two kind of surrealist, um, you know, sort of pataphysical um, <laughs> sort of um, literary you know, kind of um, literary gamesters who were engaged in some sort of odd experimentation with this whole project and who seem to be trying to do something like what, you know, Nick Land and the CCRU called hyperstition. So in other words, I mean, they, they didn't use those terms or what we would maybe today call something like meme warfare, right? right? So, or meme magic. So basically what they were trying to do was create this fake and create and then sort of verify this, um, these fake historical documents, which would intervene in contemporary history by inserting a, an imaginary past into um, the historical record, right? And so for them, it was some kind of complicated literary game, it would seem, um, which again, I, I think is probably best understood in terms of something like hyperstition or, or more recently, meme magic. Right. And so... You know, you have this kind of odd collusion between this reactionary huckster, right? And these two kind of, um, literary, you know, practitioners of a kind of literary experimentation, you know, who both have this kind of surrealist background and are sort of interested in this project 
for its potentiality of, of again, kind of, um, conjuring a fake past into existence and, and sort of count, you know, counterfeiting history and smuggling it in as real. So, um, that, that seems to be what was going on between these three who kind of collaborated in this hoax. So basically, uh, Plontar and Cherizet, um, insert these documents into the, you know, archives of the French. They basically smuggle these fake, you know, forged documents into the French National Library. Um, you know, somebody else who I'd love to do an episode on some, on, at some point who's, who they're quite similar to is, you know, Mark Hoffman, who, yeah, you know, basically did something similar with Mormon, with the Mormon church, right? He created these fake historical documents and then basically got the church to accept them as real and put them, kind of put them in its, in its vaults. Um, so there's kind of this interest in, you know, the potential of forgery to actually, and, you know, here we can go back to, certain kind of, um, you know, founding interests of modernity and sort of authentic, authenticity, authentication, legitimation, which of course is what, um, what Langdon is, is often called upon to do. Right. Right. But we can think here about like the forgery of Constantine, right. right. Where basically there's this idea of, um, you know, the, the donation of Constantine is, is revealed in the Renaissance as a forgery, which, you know, essentially is, is, regarded as kind of a, a a crucial step towards um you know weakening the legitimacy of the the Catholic Church and the papacy through scholarship right and so in a sense what what these guys are doing is something like the reverse of that right it's it's using this kind of pseudo scholarship and and um forgery and fraud to create a fake history and sort of insert it into the um, archivally, um, archivally, you know, authenticated past of the nation, right? right? So, so this is a very odd, you know, <laughs> genealogy because basically what you have is these kind of different sorts of, you know, very sort of recondite, um, French intellectuals who for various reasons get involved in this sort of strange project, right? Which is to, um, to, conjure up this kind of alternative past, right? Centered around the secret continuity of the Merovingian line and the Priory of Zion. And they're doing this for completely different reasons. Um, you know, seemingly on one part kind of self-serving, but also, you know, politically reactionary and seemingly on the other part, sort of ludic and, um, you know, sort of interested in an almost kind of situationist politics of of sort of detournement where you can you know you can kind of um you know just as you might sort of turn propaganda and advertising against itself you can sort of turn officially official history against itself in some way so it's it's a very odd um story and then basically it's picked up because these british authors come upon it and write this relatively popular 1980s kind of you know, nonfiction conspiracy potboiler, right? Which essentially the, the most, um, the most notable claims of which are, you know, which are, are the ones that are, you know, famously resurfaced in the, the Da Vinci Code are that, you know, there is this secret Merovingian line that dates back to, um, that, that in fact goes back to the secret and suppressed fact of the, the sexual union of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene. Right. And so that 
Jesus Christ to Mary Magdalene found the, the Merovingian line because I believe it's that Mary Magdalene is pregnant when, when Jesus is, um, is executed. Right. She escapes to France, um, you know, in order to, um, evade the Roman authorities and then, you know, gives birth to the first scion of this line that, um, that later go on to become the kings and queens of France or to at least um, figure in the genealogy of the kings and queens of France, which ties the French monarchy back to the monarchy of ancient Israel, right? Through, right. The, um, through Jesus's descent from, from David. Right. Um, and so, you know, basically you have this notion of an unbroken line, right. Um, which oddly parallels that of the Catholic church, but is, is also figured as opposed to it. Yes. Because it, it represents a different succession, right? It represents not the, not Peter's succession, right? As the, the, the sort of rock upon which the church is built as a sort of, um, you know, again, a kind of, um, on the basis of ideological rather than biological reproduction through a sort of celibate male line, right. but rather, um, uh, a line of, of equal, um, antiquity that is perpetuated through, um, importantly, as we'll get into through, you know, sexual reproduction, right? And that ties the present back to, you know, that, that ties the present back to the past, um, and that, you know, affords a kind of legitimacy to power or to certain modes of power through that um, that link to the sort of, um, you know, foundational monarchy of ancient Israel and then the, you know, founding of Christianity right. by Jesus. So, um, the, the other important point here is that, you know, the holy, holy blood and holy grail is that, um, you know, in fact, the whole myth of the holy grail is a sort of cipher itself. Right. Because the real holy grail is not, um, uh, a a cup or a chalice, but is a, um, is the, the continued bloodline, right? So it's sans right. real, um, so, so it's a, it's a play on words, right? Or a kind of cipher where sans real, uh, is, is a sort of pun for, um, holy grail and, um, holy blood. Right. And so the search for the holy grail, right? Which, you know, Langdon takes up the, the most ancient of quests. Is refigured as a search for the continue the continued bloodline of the of Jesus Christ and Mary Magdalene, right, which has passed through the French monarchy, right, and is is preserved by this and and protected by this secret organization called the Prior, Priory of Zion, which is at various points linked to other historical entities and organizations, including the the Cathars and the Templars. Right. So I think that, you know, kind of sums up the basic, um, sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> invented mythology that Brown, um, plucks out of the, out of Holy Blood and Holy Grail, which in turn was plucked out of this kind of bizarre sort of literary conspiracy of 20th century French intellectuals. Right. And one of the things about this that I think we're suggesting, you know, justifies all of this digging into, um, you know, 
uh, hyperstitional literary experiments from the past is that we're talking about who is, what, what is, what is the deep state? Yeah. Um, and because we have a kind of doubling of in, inside religious institutions of a kind of religious deep state that's, um, uh, and a fantasy about how that works and how succession um, and continuity over time happens, right? So, you know, the, 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 the thing that one can see here is that is if you read this kind of concern back into Dan Brown's, um, previous techno thrillers, um, you can see one that, um, religious concerns with succession and ideological stability and ideological succession are, are happening prior to 9-11 in, in a Cold War context as a discussion about um, the security state. And and then on that, you can see that on the one hand. And you can also see that with the Da Vinci Code, explicit reference to the U.S. state and geopolitics as, um, you know, a matter of uh, sort of uh, Cold War tussling over information and science disappears. Um so there's this there's this post 9/11 moment where the way in which the popular understanding of um of of uh transnational relations as um as political um as um as about the military as about information goes away and vanishes into this fantasy about an internal um continuity and division in Catholicism so, right. So, yeah, it's fascinating that just, you know, in the wake of 9-11. So this book, you know, we have to assume was written. I mean, it was yeah. published in 2003. So it's written basically over the couple of years following 9-11, written and published over the couple of years following 9-11. Right. So, you know, what's fascinating is that the very concerns that are central to the first two novels, or they're not the first two, but I mean, in some sense to the first three novels, because in right. Angels and Demons, we still have this. Um, I mean, we still have the kind of threat of terrorism of a sort. We have, um, yeah. we have, you know, the specter of, of radical Islam. And then in the other two novels, we have the sort of crises of the post Cold War security state, which in Digital Fortress, you know, are, are explicitly again associated with terrorism and the sort of new challenges that the state faces again in terms of the, the wide distribution of, of cryptographic technology. And it's, it's ability to, you know, enable, um, anti-state sort of diffuse anti-state actors to challenge the, the authority of the, the, the security state. And so, you know, what's fascinating is that you have this turn away from this whole set of themes, which have become newly present to everyone, um, in the wake of 9-11. And, and yet it's precisely at this point that Brown, turns almost completely away from this set of themes, except in a very kind of um, displaced form. Yeah. And instead produces this, this novel that, you know, again, continues this kind of odd speculative modern mythology that originates in 20th century France. Um, and, you know, it, it, I mean, I suppose one sense in which there's a continuity is that there's an interest in, in the, um, in the, the sort of threats posed by non-state actors, right? In right. This, 
Serena. But, you know, basically what's fascinating is not only that he does this, but that this is the book that actually makes his career, right? That, right. That this is what people want to read about after 9-11, not more, you know, techno thrillers, right? right. Um, because right. in some ways, you know, Digital Fortress is much more directly about the the sort of geopolitical um, crises that became, that were sort of laid bare by 9-11, right? And yet, you know, he's actually turning away from that and turning instead to this much more bizarre and um, and sort of, you know, arcane and obscure um, historical narrative, right? And, you know, it's also fascinating that he's basically returning to the origins of the West, right? He's returning to the origins of Christendom. He's returning to the question of how the West becomes the West in some sense, right? So in that sense, I think the sort of, you know, clash of civilizations themes of this period are, um, are, you know, uh, I mean, it is, it is germane to these concerns, even if in a less direct way. Yeah. So it, it's, it's concerned, the Da Vinci Code is concerned with how did the West become the West? Um, how did it become a distinct civilization? Yeah. It's also concerned with, you know, what, <laughs> what in a sense is the deep state or the, what is the kind of, um, what is the DNA, what is the fundamental cultural DNA of, of Western civilization, right? Yeah. In some sense. And, um, you know, what, what makes it, um, you know, for, where does its stability actually reside, right? Or where, where does the sort of stability and continuity of the civilization actually reside? Right. So it's in a way just, you know, it's, it's taking these concerns which were enacted in the realm of sort of, you know, interagency tension and conflict in the earlier novels and kind of drilling down to, you know, and, and drilling down is important because these are, you know, novels about excavation, um, about going, you know, as we saw in Angels and Demons, it's about, it's about co- kind of going deep into the, the sort of vaults of, of the civilization and, um, trying to, you know, r- return to the source and, yep. and figure out what it is. Right. Right. And so, um, I, I suppose, you know, for those who, for those who didn't read it or see the movie, it might be worth just laying out the story. So it begins with the murder of Jacques Saunier, the curator of the Louvre, um, in a sort of bizarre, um, who's found in a sort of bizarre posture, um, and having sort of scrawled a message in blood. Yes. Um, and so Robert Langdon is, as it happens, in town in Paris and had previously had some acquaintance with Jacques Saunier, um, and had been on his, in his calendar as a, um, you know, that they were going to get together for coffee, right? Yeah. And so then Saunier doesn't show up. Langdon is giving a lecture and, um, the French, the, uh, people who describe themselves as, as the French FBI, um, show up and basically bring him to, uh, to, I mean, again, you know, perhaps somewhat strangely, um, it, it's unclear initially to what extent he's being brought in as a suspect or being brought in as a, an expert, um, to examine the, um, the strange circumstances in which the body ha- has been found. So, 
you know, while at the Louvre examining the the uh, body of his, you know, murdered colleague, he meets um, Sophie, who is um, a cryptographer. And again, here, you know, the state is not out of the picture because the French security state is actually quite important in the story. Um, so Sophie is a cryptographer for again the the French um the French police. Um and she is brought in to try to make sense of what's going on with this sort of strange these sort of strange um encrypted um messages that Sonier has has left in, in his own blood. Yes. And basically um this is where the two of them um, first encounter each other. Do you want to yeah. do you want to take up a bit more plot summary at this point? Um, sure. It's um, so one of the I, Dan. Or sorry, you can you can feel the slippage. Uh, Robert Langdon um, is is working on a manuscript um, at the time of this novel opens called Symbols of the Lost Sacred Feminine. And um, uh, Jacques Saunier is, uh, as Langdon tells us, the the premier goddess iconographer on earth um, and is interested in goddess worship and the concept of female sanctity. The, the symbols that are that are scrawled here um, uh, end up um, referring to the goddess in an important way and um, and this will begin the action of the novel which involves a series of interpretive steps where um, Langdon reads the code that has been left which turns out to be incredibly simple over and over again and that that takes them a on a trip um uh through the museum and across um and through paris and then ultimately um to england and uh the another thing about sophie is Sophie is a is a cryptographer um and Langdon is a symbologist and so we have the recurrence of these um types from the past but um the past of these novels the past of Dan Brown's novels but in 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 a reworked form that is um uh internal to religious concerns. Should we, should we just say what the, what's, what's going on here? There are, there are two, um, apparently dueling secret organizations. Okay. Opus Dei and the Priory of Zion. And, um, the, the, there's a question about, um, the secrecy of the fact that Jesus and Mary have living descendants on earth today. Yeah. And um, the the public revelation of this fact is um, threatening to uh, the stability and authority of Catholicism and Christianity writ large. And so whether or not to reveal this um, uh, to the world becomes an important part of the action here. It, it will turn out in the end um, that Sophie herself 
is a descendant of uh Jesus and Mary and um and you know we can also we can also talk about here about what her role is in um in sort of succession and inheritance right the she is you know if you want to talk about uh you want to talk about grooming? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So something I rewatched the movie of the Da Vinci Code recently. So basically, so she is the granddaughter, although as well, it, it later turns out adoptive granddaughter of right. Jacques Saunier. So, you know, and she doesn't divulge this originally to Langdon um, when, you know, when they first uh, meet each other in the museum. But, you know, we later find this out. And we also find out that she has been estranged from her grandfather and we, it takes a while until we learn why, right? And the reason eventually is that, um, the reason that's eventually revealed is that she was at, uh, you know, she went to boarding school as a kid and at some point came home, uh, maybe I think she's supposed to have been like 12 or something like that at this time or maybe 10 or 11. And yeah. she came home unexpectedly early. And basically, um, you know, showed up to her grandfather's house unexpectedly and there witnessed a, um, a strange occurrence, which basically involved, um, a couple of people having sex in front of a, a gathering of other people who were all wearing masks. And we know from Dan Brown himself that he based the description of this, um, this scene on Eyes Wide Shut. Right. right. That the, the, the sequence where, um, you know, Tom Cruise penetrates the inner sanctum of the, the strange, um, right. secret society that he's trailing. So, um, so basically she witnesses, I mean, it's, it's very clearly a kind of Freudian primal scene, right? She, she walks in on mommy and daddy, so to speak. She, she witnesses a sort of public sex act overseen by these strange figures wearing masks. Right. And she, you know, this um, is traumatizing. She flees the scene and refuses contact with her grandfather after this. Right. Yes. Now, there is an interesting little. um, (laughs) So obviously, you know, this is the relative, at least sort of PG-13 rated, you know, version of this sort of story. But there's a hint of some other possibilities in. in the film, just because at some point when, when Sophie finally divulges this to Langdon, he says, well, maybe your grandfather was grooming you for the Priory of Zion. Yes. So basically, um, you know, th- there's this implication that, you know, she's basically pre-adolescent, pre, you know, just pre-pubescent when all this happens, right? And so if we sort of put two and two together and think on one hand about eyes wide shut and... It's connection, you know, much commented connection to, you know, Kubrick's supposed insider knowledge of, you know, what was already going on with Epstein and so on. And, um, you know, this idea that, you know, basically the, the Priory of Sion is um, embedded in the powerful institutions of the world like the Louvre, right? Yes. And we're later told about all these important figures like Isaac Newton and so on who were members of it over the years. Right. And... You know, so the Priory of Zion, we have to believe, you know, features basically 
the the um the elites of all nations right are are members of the secret organization what does this organization do well they get together for basically ritualized orgies is, yep. is the main thing that we find out they do the other thing they do is you know maintain the bloodline of of the um of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and you know protect it but basically um you know this is essentially a kind of sex cult Right. So, the Pride of Zion is a sex cult. Yes. Sophie is initially um, exposed to this fact, flees it, and then, you know, essentially through her adventure with Langdon is ultimately reconciled to it again. Right. right. So in a sense, um, you know, it's important to note that what we're ultimately supposed to conclude at the end of this novel is that the Priory of Zion I mean, unlike the Illuminati in Angels and Demons, the Priory of Zion still exists, is real, and is benevolent, right? Is um, is entirely a force of good in the world, right? right? I mean, I want to stick with this moment where uh, the primal scene moment for a second, because there's um, an important sense in which the 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 primal scene is getting um duplicated at a, it, it is 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 the union of an institution the the sexual relationships among mommy and daddy are and the understanding of how they operate is duplicated at an institutional level in this so um you know oh oh my god too traumatic what is daddy doing to mommy i i've i've seen something i can't unsee and and there's a kind of misunderstanding of institutions that happens here with the um uh the 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 traumatizing exposure to sex so what it turns out to to be is that christianity um which as we know is sort of um, perpetuated through sort of uh, not it, it is, isn't isn't sexually reproductive actually has properly understood in its core a goddess sex cult um, um, that is the way it operates under the hood and um, and so it, it, it's just impossible to not think about this in relationship to um, eyes wide shut uh, you know but also right. Epstein and speculation about the sexual operations of those in, in power here as, um, as a sort of, uh, a hidden, a hidden truth be behind what appears to be, you know, political change over time or, um, a, a sort of official, official continuity of power in the world and then an unofficial sexualized continuity under the hood. And importantly for Dan Brown, Robert Langdon's on the side of, ultimately of the secret sex cult and also on the side of the maintenance of its secrecy. Um, so again, we get a kind of double so, a play, a play with right. revelation have- here in these books where, where what, it, what, it, what purport to be books about revealing the inner truth of the history actually involve the protagonist and the reader in a kind of cover up activity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so a couple other things um we talked about in um in the institutional crises in deception point and digital fortress you have basically the creepy the creepy older man trying to get it on with the younger you know have basically the sort of me too scenario right right so in both those novels you have an institution that is um 
you know, that is sort of marred by the, the machinations of this, um, hypersexualized older man who wants to sort of monopolize the women within the institution for himself, right? And so this is a sort of figuration of what is wrong with this institution, right? That it's become sort of incestuous and involuted and that it, um, you know, it, it, it can no longer sort of maintain its place in the world because of this kind of perversion that has overtaken it. Right. So oddly what you have in Da Vinci Code is some kind of refiguration of this scenario where, you know, it it can kind of be good. And again, you know, the secret society is always the, the sort of site of jouissance, right. Of, and, and so, you know, if we understand the Priory of Sion as this, um, this diffuse, um, cults that encompasses, you know, potentially sort of all, all of the major sort of powerful figures in the world, right. Which, you know, will come up again with Freemasonry in the lost symbol, but basically, you know, the point of it is that it, it is the kind of space of, of a kind of authorized jouissance, right. That, yes. that it's where power can enjoy. Um, and it's, and power can only enjoy in this kind of, um, this kind of enclosed and, you know, uh, largely and sort of inaccessible space, right? Yeah. Which, which, um, which ultimately cannot and should not be seen by the masses, right? And so, you know, he's, I mean, whereas I, I suppose we could say something like the solution proposed in the earlier novels is that you have to have a sort of rejuvenation of these institutions through um, a sort of exogamous relation. Yes. Um, right. And, and also a feminization, right? That's the other point that I think is right. That these, these state instances, these sclerotic state bureaucracies have to be renewed by sort of hot, brilliant women. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, and we have to kind of get rid of the old, um, the old creeps who, you know, want to just get it on with them. But, um, so instead, we have to bring in these kind of, um, you know, male feminist academic types, I guess. Yeah. So basically, you know, it, it's it, you know, there we have a kind of fantasy of the renewal of institutions through this kind of exogamous relation between the state and the the institutions of the production of knowledge. Right. So whereas in Da Vinci Code, what we get is something a bit stranger. Right. Which is that you know, the kind of stability and continuity of institutions comes from this sort of secret disavowed investment in the enjoyment um, carried out in these, in the Hieros Gamos rituals. Right. 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 And I think the other point that, that, you know, is, is worth dwelling on here is that this is also an assertion. So, I mean, it's, it's quite strange in a way, right? Because basically the, the, the claim is not only that there's this continued bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, but what that proves is that, you know, Christianity in its original form was actually a sort of, um, uh, a sort of cult of the sacred feminine and ultimately a, a pay, you know, fundamentally pagan. Yes. Um, sect, right? And so, you know, wh- what this means is basically that there is no, I mean, going back to this point about how does the West sort of cleave off as a civilization from the world? And the answer is that in this version, there is actually no sort of traumatic cleavage, right? That um, ultimately there is no break between paganism and monotheism, right? 
because the the central monotheistic institutions are, as it turns out, you know, sort of sustained by this disavowed pagan investment in the sacred feminine. Yes. Right. And this is an odd ambiguity about the, the role of the Priory of Sion because you know, in some on some levels, it seems to be an antagonist of the church, but then on the other on another level, it seems that there's an implication that it's sort of the, um, you know, it's it's the I mean, it it is necessary for the the maintenance of the church, right? That, right. that in some way the church needs it, right? Because right. if the church doesn't have that, then you get something like Opus Dei, which is explicitly represented as um, a perverse and sadomasochistic organization, right? Of yes. where again, this kind of involution of desire occurs and explicitly takes the form of this, um, of masochistic jouissance, right? Yes. In the figure of Silas, who is the assassin in this, um, in this story, who plays a very similar role to the assassin in Angels and Demons. Um, but, the diff i mean he he is also a sort of um fanatical um sort of and, and he's also a sort of grotesque you know figure of the grotesque right yes um and and so silas is um is a creature i mean he he's a he's a murderer he's also a creature of pure enjoyment right his yes. everything he does is a kind of act of you know, sadomasochistic um, jouissance, right? Right, right. And and he's a true believer as well. Um, it's uh, his religious faith and his masochism is, are tied together. And um, in a way that it's not clear uh, they are for the actual, the, the sort of people pulling the strings behind behind the, the scene. Um, I want to, the, the, the revelation of Christianity as a goddess wor- worshiping pagan sex cult is, is interesting in that you are invited by these books to engage with this um, apparent uh, revelation as though it were not a revelation at all. So what I mean is the lessons in art history that Robert Langdon delivers in the course of this novel. So um, here I can, I can read from a brief, a brief passage. Um, uh, Sophie turned quietly back to the last supper and gazed at Mary Magdalene's long red hair and quiet eyes. There was something in the woman's expression that echoed the loss of a loved one. Sophie could feel it too. Robert, she said softly, he stepped closer. I know Lee said the Grail story is all around us, but tonight is the first time I've ever heard any of this. Langdon looked as if he wanted to put a comforting hand on her shoulder, but he refrained. You've heard her story before, Sophie. Everyone has. We just don't realize it when we hear it. I don't understand. The Grail story is everywhere, but it is hidden. When the church outlawed speaking of the shunned Mary Magdalene, her story and importance had to be passed on through more discreet channels, channels that supported metaphor and symbolism. Of course, the arts. So um, you see her everywhere, paintings, music, books, even in cartoons, theme parks, and popular movies. Okay, So it turns out that um, just all of culture, what it is, is the repetition of the, uh, you know, apparently suppressed um, truth about Western civilization, Western Christianity, and it's, you know, and the 
durability of the institution, religious institutions that, um, that they, they, uh, that go with them. And, and the, and, and this, this, this is really quite serious. You know, Langdon is, who Langdon is as a character is, um, he's a guy that's kind of summed up by his relationship to, um, physical objects. Um, there's these sort of, in embarrassing passages where he talks about how he grinds his own coffee beans and um there's a constant dwelling on um cars and planes but through their model numbers um that is that comes out of the kind of techno thriller language um where you know you say exactly what kind of gun it is and what kind of scope is mounted on the gun and you can enjoy the kind of um, technical apparatus of, of war and machines, but this becomes an identity issue with, with Robert Langdon. So who Robert Langdon is, is a guy that owns, you know, certain things that he bought in the Sharper Image catalog. And one of those things is his Mickey Mouse watch. So this is, um, uh, so embarrassing that it distracts you from the kind of reading that you're asked to do with the Mickey Mouse watch. So even his Mickey Mouse watch, which is this cheap piece of uh, 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 cheap commodity, um, and that is, you know, um, metonymically refers to the entire world of the capitalist culture, cultural production, right? Mickey Mouse is, um, is attached for him to Disney. And what Disney is, is the repetition of sacred feminine symbols over and over again, um, through Cinderella, Snow White, what he calls at one point, the incarceration of the sacred feminine. Okay. So, um, so identity, personal identity for, for Langdon, um, the product consumption, the totality of the arts and the economy are all fused and you are invited to understand the surface of the world as itself the secret history of the world. At once, yeah. Right, um, and so this is, as you brought up before, this is a kind of odd, you know, sort of Roland Barthesian yeah. <laughs> projects, right? Because yeah. it really does, you know, it, it, you could write a sort of mythologies, except it would be a sort of symbological mythologies, right? Where you, and he does this kind of thing, right? He'll, he'll talk about like the necktie as the, yeah. You know, the, the sort of signifier of the, of, you know, phallic masculinity and just, you know, he, he does this kind of thing as he, as he walks around the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, um, and he does a kind of free association too, uh, about it. You know, there are these, the way that the Brown writes, there's these kind of passages where you get very short sentences where it's just like the Sangreal documents, the true history of Jesus Christ, the tomb of Mary Magdalene. And then, Langdon is overwhelmed. He suddenly felt as if he were living in some kind of limbo tonight, a bubble where the real world could not reach him. There's he Langdon tends to sort of disassociate in these moments of interpretation and get overwhelmed by the text of the world itself, which both drives him and Sophie from place to place as they interpret these signs. But as I said before, the interpretation is always the same. The, uh... Right. And, and importantly, this is a kind of classic Freudian sublimation, right? And yeah. this, you know, goes back to what you were saying about the sex scene with Vittoria, right? The, right. um, the work of, the work of symbology is always a kind of, um, it's a, it's a, it's a sublimation of the sort of perverse jouissance of, you know, cause we see the perverse jouissance of the Illuminati, of the pseudo Illuminati, 
um, and their their executioner in the form of the assassin. We see it in the in Silas. Yeah. And so you know, and then we see it conversely in the Priory of Zion, right, where sex has to be performed within this kind of um, within this kind of um, um, choreographed uh, symbolic repetition, right? Right. 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 And so. You know, for Langdon, it's, it's instead the, the work of, the work of symbological interpretation is, is always, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's again, it's a classical Freudian sublimation, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's part of why he can't really fuck even the one time that he does. He, he just, he can't really do it. <laughs> the, the kind of total, the like the crushing totality, um, and the lack of an outside to the world of signs that, that Langdon lives in now where um uh, science is going away in in this book and these manufactured uh science v religion um debates are now a kind of uh struggle that is entirely internal to culture and 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 religion and so another way of saying this is that you can start to understand how um uh, Bush did 9-11 is also operating here, right? So the, the antagonist of, of the Da Vinci Code, um, uh, is, is masterminding, um, is, is both, is both intimately familiar to, to Langdon and is, um, and is controlling the actions of Silas, uh, the albino, um, he's referred to as the teacher for a while. And, um, so, so destabilization of um, religion in the form of revelation is actually, you know, about difficulties internal to religion itself, right? If there, there, there's, there's, there isn't an external threat here. And um, in fact, it's so, it's so potent that you kind of wonder as you're reading these, whether any of the drama that, um, comprises the thriller component of these, um, needs to happen at all. Like, um, if the characters just sort of went home and ignored everything that was going on, it might not have mattered at all. Yeah. The, um, and, and indeed, well, it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a crucial point about these Langdon novels because it's also important that basically the killer's actions are always in a sense a performance only for Langdon because they are only legible yes. to him. Right. Yes. And so th- basically if there were no Langdon, then none of this actually could have happened. Right. Because right. he's the only one who can actually figure out what's going on. Right. Um, right. And so in that sense, you know, it's, and I mean, and this is the, this is the way in which, um, you know, I think if, if Langdon is sort of the, you know, because basically in, in, a and D and DVC, the, the, basically we have, he's the, he's the, he's the stand in for America, right? For the United States. Um, yeah. everyone else is European, right? So, you know, in some sense, what we're, what we're, the drama here is the sort of, the, the, the American naifs encounter, you know, the, the old, oldest time story of the sort of American naifs encounter with the, you know, convoluted, deep histories of the old world, right? right? And this is obviously a very old notion, right? And right. and kind of story. Um but, you know, what's what's important here though is that, you know, in some way, 
Um, at the same time, the world is merely a kind of puppet show performed for the benefit of the American subject, right? Yes. That, that it, 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 it's not clear, um, to what extent it, it has, I mean, and this is interesting in relation to a kind of surface and depth problem, right? It's, yeah. it's unclear, you know, because in both Angels and Demons and DVC, there's sort of this, um, I mean, with, um, with Angels and Demons, there's sort of an illusion of depth, right? Because there's an illusion of the secret machinations of the Illuminati, which turns out to be, um, a hoax, right? Yeah. And with Da Vinci Code, basically, so what, you know, just to do the spoiler part, you know, what is ultimately revealed, so at, at, in, during, um, Langdon and Sophie's, uh, sort of meanderings around Paris and beyond, um, Langdon decides to go see, and which they're trying to decipher this sort of series of objects, right? Which we could get into. Um, and he, um, including this thing called a cryptex, right? Which I think was supposedly invented by Galileo. And it's like a, um, you know, it's a, a cylinder that encloses uh, a, a scroll. And, you know, if you, um, you, you have, you can only open it by knowing the right code. Right. right. And if you, um, if you try to sort of force it open, then there's some kind of, um, acid inside it that will destroy the scroll. Right. Okay. So anyway, they're, they're going around trying to figure out how to decipher the scroll or decipher the, or find the, um, the key to the cryptex. Right. They go to visit Langdon's friend, um, Lee Teabing, who is, um, described as the sort of world renowned expert on the, so like Sonier, he's another sort of world-renowned expert, in this case, on the Priory of Zion itself, right? And right. this is, again, as as in Angels and Demons, up to this point, you know, Langdon was sort of skeptical that the Priory of Zion still existed, right? Yeah, yeah. He thought it was sort of interesting, um, you know, for purely academic reasons, but he didn't think there was a real-world referent, right? And right. so he's sort of come to conclude that he was wrong, and he goes to see Teabing, who he previously disagreed with on this, and is sort of willing to concede that Teabing may have been onto something. So in any case, the spoiler here is that Teabing, just as it turned out in Angels and Demons, that the Camerlengo was the puppet master orchestrating this supposed Illuminati plot. Um, Teabing is the puppet master orchestrating the supposed Opus Dei series of right. Opus Dei hits against, um, against, uh, you know, figures in the Priory of Science. So, um, you know, Silas, the assassin, was actually, you know, um, directly hired by this sort of shadowy figure who turns out to have been teabing, right? Who had also manipulated right. Cardinal Arenga Rosa, who is sort of Silas's mentor. Yes. And protector, um, into, you know, going along with this whole scheme because what they want to do is, um, you know, because basically there's the idea that the Catholic Church in order to maintain its kind of all-male celibate order, has had to suppress the truth about Christianity being a sort of, you know, um, goddess-worshipping fertility cult at its core. And so um, what they want to do is identify the Priory of Zion and uh, identify the members of the Priory of Zion and use them to get to the um, 
the actual remains of Mary Magdalene so they can destroy them. Right. Interestingly, in um, the movie, but not in the book, this is explicitly framed in terms of DNA evidence. So yeah. basically the church is worried that the Priory of Zion will reveal or someone will discover the remains of Mary Magdalene, do a DNA test, and then pr- be able to prove that there are living people who, you know, share the DNA, which, yes. you know, in terms of actual genetics is completely batshit because <laughs> obviously someone who lived 2000 years ago and had descendants is likely to have people today who have some of their DNA, but you know, it's sort of, I mean, this, the, the idea of the lineage of the bloodline is, you know, genetically totally nonsensical, right? Because yes. it somehow as- assumes that over 2000 years, you can have um, a singular identifiable bloodline that is not kind of um, dil- infinitely diluted along the way ac- across the course of generations. But in any case, so there's this odd, um, you know, but but there's this odd conjunction there of this kind of older idea of genealogy where, you know, you can sort of imagine something like a bloodline, right? And then the modern genetic conception of genealogy, which more or less, you know, renders that nonsensical, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because the idea that you can sort of trace a quote-unquote direct line of descent between, you know, a few people today and a few people 2,000 years ago is is absurd, <laughs> because right. all of us have, you know, thousands of ancestors 2000 years ago. There's no single couple that we're descended from. So, you know, you know what I'm saying, right? I do. So it's, it's a very, I mean, so this is like this whole notion of the bloodline in this novel is completely batshit insane. It makes no sense. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's just simply impossible. Right. Um, but nevertheless, in the movie, you have this notion of DNA evidence, right? That somehow they can prove that you know, Mary Magdalene existed and also proved that there are real life people today who are part of her bloodline. And so the church wants to avoid this by finding the remains of Mary Magdalene and destroying them, right? Yeah. Or or hiding them away, right? Yeah. And so um, basically it turns out that this plot was hatched neither by Opus Dei nor by uh, the Priory of Zion, but by Teabing, yes. who is this kind of Priory of Zion wannabe, right? He's, right? he's obsessed with them, but he hasn't managed to penetrate them or figure out who they are, right? But he sort of idolizes them. And basically, he wants to kind of force a final confrontation between these two antagonistic forces. And he wants to thereby bring about he he wants the Priory of Zion to go public, right? He wants yes. it to um, reveal the truth of Mary Magdalene and of the continuity of her bloodline to the world, right. which he believes will basically bring world peace. I mean, again, it's it's the same fantasy which we see again and again, right? It's um it's this vision of um of a sort of um you know unified world and civilization through some spectacular revelation, right? Which is what at the beginning of Angels and Demons, um, you know, Vetra and the Pope were planning to do with antimatter. Again, in this case, it's Teabing wants to reveal the truth about Mary Magdalene and her continued bloodline in order to, um, you know, finally defeat the sort of revanchist, um, you know, patriarchal forces of the Catholic church and bring about world peace and harmony. Right. And so, 
you know, what's important here is that he, I mean, the Priory of Zion is itself, again, regarded by Langdon as ultimately beneficent. So he, he shares that conclusion. But, um, the other important point here is that, you know, Teabing is, um, it clearly turns out to be a sort of evil madman, right? Who needs yes. to be stopped. Yes. And he, he's gone too far. And so this, you know, brings us back to this point about all of these novels, which is that, you know, the, the ultimate resolution comes with the reassertion of secrecy, right? There are certain things that need to be kept secret. And so not, not everything can be divulged. Um, and, you know, this happens again and again in these novels. And so, you know, jumping ahead to the end, you know, basically Langdon, um, sort of has this, he's back in Paris. Um, he has this kind of illumination in which he realizes that the true, um, site of the remains of Mary Magdalene, aka the Holy Grail yes. is beneath the Louvre. Yeah. Right. So it's basically takes him back to where the whole thing started. That that final moment is I mean, we, we should talk a little bit about how madness works here um, and insanity. It's um, but that 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 final moment is is remarkable. It Langdon experiences a kind of mystical revelation where he can hear. Um, the God, the goddess speaks to him. Um, the wisdom of the ages. uh uh, uh, whisper in his ear and he falls to his knees, um, in, in prayer before the, the bones of Mary Magdalene, which are, um, are, they're, they're not, they're not, they're not merely hidden in the Louvre. They're, um, they're under the, uh, pyramid that's, um, the sort of the inverted pyramid. So we have this sort of, the chalice and the blade imagery of sort of the, the, the uniting of the masculine and the feminine principles through, um, through a kind of pagan goddess worship that is our, uh, that is at the center of culture, that is to say at the center of the Louvre and is at the origin of, of Christian experience. I mean, there, there's also a, uh, a sort of marvelous return here in the end of um, the Da Vinci Code to the very opening scene of Angels and Demons where uh, Robert Langdon is having a dream about um, himself uh, on the pyramid at Giza. Um, it, it, it kind of would have been better if Dan Brown had um, uh, just retired uh, after writing the Da Vinci Code and we could have had a lovely little closure here. But one of the one of the great things, um, as I think we'll talk about in uh, future episodes about the Langdon novels, is that, you know, the end of history takes place and then you keep living. Um, all apocalypses uh, um, are survivable. And, uh, you know, what it's like to live in this interpretive universe um, that Dan Brown has set up, um, but... Um, but, but to survive this kind of mystical experience and, and closure and to experience this reverie will, will get played out as attempts to duplicate this kind of mystical union, um, in future novels, um, take place, right? The, the Dan Brown, there, there's, these are very formulaic. 
And so you as a reader and enjoyer of them are supposed to be able to get the same thing again and again. And there's a kind of failure to achieve that that happens in Dan Brown novels where you can it becomes difficult to imagine him writing another one. And yet he must. And so repetition of the past um, uh, uh, takes place, but in a kind of degenerate um, degenerate form. So um, that's one of the things that's going on with the sexual unions at the end of this. Right. It's there's there's no there's the, these last pages of the Da Vinci Code. Um, now, uh, what, what should be a physical union, um, for Dan, for Robert Langdon is an entirely spiritual union of symbols and, um, the kind of communication of an ancient wisdom. So to, to be turned into the incelification of Robert Langdon is, um, the exact same process as, um, the kind of closure of history these are understood to be the same thing in dan brown novels and um and and yet at the end of the day you 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 survive right you continue as uh as as an incel you go back to harvard and resume teaching your pathetic undergraduates there's also a kind of sense in this there's that dan brown's novels are shot through with um with flashback scenes to langdon's teaching and um there are moments where he is like creepily talking to his undergraduates about sex and uh you know there's 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 a moment in the da vinci code where he explicitly um talks about the contents of eyes wide shut as just sort of obvious um and the and then he sees smiles on the faces of his female students who um, are all aware that they are um, the transmitters of the sacred feminine. So it turns out that like all of the, the, the this this mystical moment is also something that is universe has a kind of universal availability to the reader, and, and they too can either be a woman and immediately transmit the sacred feminine, or be Robert Langdon and kind of not fuck anymore, but kind of dwell on it positively. So. Um, yeah, it's a, it, Dan, why didn't you stop, man? You could have, it could have just been fine. We could have, but the story continues. So at the end of this novel, he, um, he and Sophie end up, I mean, another, um, you know, we've talked about some notion of like the unencoded code. Yeah. I mean, I guess part of what's fascinating is that the secret resting place of these things they're searching for always turns out to be sort of, more or less the obvious one you would think of already. Yeah, yeah. So it turns out that, you know, um, where, where they're, the sort of trail that they follow through deciphering all of these, you know, not very sophisticatedly encrypted messages, you know, which are mostly encrypted as like anagrams and things like that. Yeah. <clears throat> um, they ultimately leads them to Rosslyn Chapel, which is the, the sort of place of the last stand of the Knights Templar. Yes. Who, you know, are, are presented in this as the kind of, um, you know, this, this medieval order dedicated to, again, the, the sort of perpetuation of these secret doctrines of the sacred feminine and the protection of the, um, of the remains of Mary Magdalene, which I believe they actually, I'm trying to remember, isn't it that they go on the crusade in order to like reclaim it from the, Middle East or something. I can't remember. Something like, something like that. But yeah. Yeah. In any case, but then they're suppressed by the church because they're too powerful. Um, but you know, 
<laughs> as as would not be surprising to anybody with even a passing familiarity of this kind of stuff. It of course turns out where they're led is Rosslyn Chapel, which you know anybody who like knows anything about even just a little bit about free about um, the Knights Templar is aware of that place. They go there. Sophie meets her actual grandmother and her sort of, um, you know, her, <laughs> her, the fellow members of her bloodline who, um, you know, and, and interestingly, you know, we have this moment of like consanguinity, right? Where she, she reencounters her bloodline, which, I mean, and I think this kind of goes back to this weird, this, this theme of incest, right? In a weird way, because yeah. basically what happens is, you know, she and Langdon are sort of, you know, being touchy feely with each other. But in the end, she decides to stick around at Rosslyn Chapel and sort of get to know her, uh, blood, her fellow bloodline members better. Yeah. While Langdon goes back to Paris and then discovers the, so this is kind of the first, you know, he's sort of already, um, <clears throat> he's already becoming incel at this point. Um, because basically, Instead of getting it on with Sophie, he goes back to Paris to have this kind of mystical communion with the sacred feminine, right? But of course, Sophie, because she is, as it turns out, the descendant of the royal bloodline, is herself the embodiment of the sacred feminine, right? But so his communion of with the sacred feminine comes in this kind of removed form rather than through direct access to the kind of physical embodiment of of the sacred feminine, right? Yes. And so... um. So the, the kind of, um, you know, the, the promise of sort of unmediated access to that, um, space of enjoyment is sort of, um, is, is denied to him, right? Or, or he, or perhaps he, you know, he refuses it, right? He, he prefers to go back to Paris and continue, um, following signs until he can reach this moment of, of, of sort of, um, mystical union. But, you know, on the other hand, what what is Sophie doing? Well, instead of having this kind of exogamous, um, I mean, you know, the other novels again enact this kind of ex- exogamous relation, right? Which um, yep. can lead to the renewal of of institutions um, and the elite. Instead, what we have is her, you know, sticking around with her bloodline, and so. You know, I, again, this, I, I mean, and again, all the weird, the weird notion of, I mean, the whole sort of notion of the bloodline is really, would only be, be comprehensible if it was a highly incestuous bloodline, right? Yes. <laughs> because yes. that's, of course, what happens with royal families. Um, and so, you know, what's odd is that this sort of threat of incest that is, um, that is repeatedly, and again, I think this is a way that this novel kind of, re-engages with the threats that are raised in the, the earlier novels, right? Where there's a kind of threat of symbolic incest. I mean, the form of kind of institutional perversion and involution. Um, instead here, what you have is a sort of, um, a, a, a apparent literal incest, right? In the form right. of the bloodline can only be an incestuous one if it is to be a bloodline at all. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, of course that would, <laughs> that would have to mean that Sophie would be, um, you know, riddled with chronic illnesses and deformed <laughs> in various ways. But, uh, but no, of course she's, um, you know, she's Audrey Tattoo. She's, uh, right. extremely hot. But, um, but, you know, the point is, um, the, in a sense, the fact that Langdon can't get it on with her in some ways seems like 
an indication of the fact that she can really only get it on with yes. other members of her bloodline, right? Yes. Yeah. And so the Priory of Sion is um it's a kind of ritually legitimated incestuous project, right? I think that's it 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 takes the sort of threat of elite um degeneration and and perversion through metaphorical and literal incest and by sort of ritualizing it um legitimates it right and makes it um makes it something that that can be sustained right rather than rather than something that threatens collapse absolutely absolutely it's um and this is also why you know she begins basically she's about to be groomed by grandpa yeah right? and then um she escapes from that right but essentially it's langdon who kind of leads her back to her ultimate destiny of being of being groomed and trafficked by the priory of Sion, right? right and sort of forced into these or or obliged um by her identity into these sort of perverse incestuous relations which are nevertheless um given the imprimatur of the sacred it it's 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 impossible not to read dan brown's own marital history into this text um we, i think we in our previous episode talked a little bit about his um ex his now ex-wife Blythe, um and who has a uncertain relationship to the contents of these novels. He tends to attribute um, uh, some of their content to her, and she clearly has has played a rather significant role in um, the content and marketing of his um, books and before that his music. Yeah. So you may recall that we began this discussion in the previous episode with his attempts to write sort of self-help books for women. So, um, the kind of feminist content that is on display in, um, uh, goddess worship, uh, paganism, uh, Mary Magdalene, um, and the arts was there all along in Dan Brown as a, um, artistic creator who is fueled by presumably the, um, uh, potent, uh, ancient sexual energy of his wife Blythe. And, um, the, the, the there is an interesting twist here because Dan Brown himself has been, um, uh, uh, seduced and, um, we know that he has had extramarital affairs and that this has led to the dissolution of that marriage. And I imagine we'll get a, another Robert Langdon novel here in the future that's not written under the influence of, of Blythe. And, um, it'll be fascinating to, to see what exactly happens here as, um, as, uh, Dan Brown himself can no longer be the vessel for the communication of the ancient, ancient wisdom. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's also worth just dwelling a little bit on the, you know, so I'm, we, I discussed the sort of, um, the textual genealogy of these ideas. Um, yeah. I, there is a sort of another genealogy, which is worth bringing up here, which is, you know, these repeated, so the Holy Grail is also, a symbol of this sacred feminine because the grail is the chalice. The chalice is 
basically the the sort of figuration of the the, the vulva, right? The um, right. female anatomy, as opposed to the blade. These are in that final mystical sequence. You know, the pyramid is the blade, and at the the pyramid above the Louvre is the blade. The um, the um, inverted pyramid beneath it is the chalice. And so this language comes from Rianne Eisler's um, book, The Chalice and the Blade, right? Which is sort of a, I believe, 70s um, sort of pop um, feminist of a certain strand right. of feminism, right? Which, and I think, you know, there is this, um, you know, one of the, one of the things this book does is take these certain strains of feminist discourse, which are basically the sort of the the narrative that um you know matriarchy was somehow um primordial and original right that um you know there was sort of a um that that you know the sort of natural mode of political existence is this kind of um is this <clears throat> this kind of matriarchal one Yes. Right. The natural mode of religion is a worship of the sacred feminine. Um, and, you know, this comes out of various different sources, you know, Bachofen, again, Rianne Eisler and so on. Yes. And, you know, without getting too much into that, you know, part of what's interesting with this book and its reception is that it, um, it is received basically as again, a sort of, a sort of being continuous with new atheism, right? That the Brown, you know, we think of as, I, I think it's, it's often probably read and, and appreciated by the same people who are reading Sam Harris's early books or yeah. Dawkins at the same time. Right. And in some ways this is odd because this is, is actually not an atheist book, right? It's a, um, a book that, you know, is <laughs> deeply invested in this kind of mystical obscurantism, right? Right. And, um, as you said, you know, in a way, the, the sort of science theme that is asserted heavily in, in the first two novels and Angels and Demons, um, it, it sort of disappears here, right? The closest thing we have to science is basically Sophie's cryptography, right? right. Sophie's work as a police cryptographer. Um, but, Basically, um, you know, this book sort of picks up these, these somewhat at the time stale and dated themes of sort of seventies feminism. Yeah. And it kind of gives them a new ideological life. Yes. And it, it does this by, um, kind of inserting them into this vague liberal hostility to, you know, kind of reawaken liberal hostility to religion, which I think in some ways is sort of awakened by 9-11, although it's then directed more towards kind of American Christianity than Islam, right? right. Although with some of the new atheists, you get the kind of combined, you know, you have Sam Harris sort of taking on, you know, Bush um, administration evangelicals and Al-Qaeda as like this, you know, two sides of the same coin. But basically you have this kind of, vague new hostility to um, religion per se, which is I suppose reemergence of a kind of pop feminism that later kind of evolves into what we now think of as like girl boss feminism. Right. Right. And 
Then you also have a lot of people in this period, I'd say the third strain of, of sort of reception of this, which is worth noting is you have, um, the Vatican, you know, you have the various Catholic church sex scandals, right? The sex right. scandals. And so you have a lot of Catholics, um, either, you know, Catholics who are becoming disillusioned as a result of this, um, and also kind of ex-Catholics who are, you know, becoming even more hostile to the, the Catholic church that they were brought up in. Right. And so I think all of these kind of converge into at least some of the sources of, of appeal for this novel, right. That it, it summons up this kind of vague hostility to um, I guess, you know, sort of warlike masculine religion, you know, patriarchal religion. Yes. Um, it, you know, renews a kind of, um, you know, longstanding American kind of Anglo-American hostility to the Catholic Church, um, but it it also um, and and it also is kind of um, it's interestingly linked to just all of these kind of you know it's it's a period of I mean in the the Catholic sex abuse scandals are just one example of this, but it's it's kind of this early internet period where there's also just this kind of series of revelations and exposures about power and what power gets up to here. We might think about Abu Ghraib, right? Yes. Um, and so it, I, I think it really taps into all of these things, right? And it yeah. interestingly does that in part by kind of rejuvenating a, a, a very kind of soft and, um, you know, kind of mushy version of this sort of seventies, um, you know, matriarchal feminism where, you know, that, that you want to conjure up some kind of suppressed past of, of more, um, beneficent and harmonious kind of, uh, female power. Yeah. And then I think, again, the other thing that this connects back to in the first two books is the way that they are explicitly about the, I mean, and connects also to girl boss feminism, you know, the feminization of the security state, right? And here it's interesting that Sophie is herself a female cryptographer within the French state, right? Because this is an actual thing that, you know, people have just started commenting on a lot lately, right? That, you know, basically the CIA, and you might think of somebody like Valerie Plame, right? A major yeah. figure of this period. But, you know, the CIA becomes an increasingly female and feminized institution, right? And this is true of, you know, various kinds of, um, various kinds of security state apparatuses. And, you know, so it, it kind of links up with and provides a kind of ideological cover for this set of developments. While at the same time, just kind of responding to these various vague anxieties and hostilities about different sorts of power and, um, and sort of institutionally ensconced elites that are, that are cropping up in this period. But it, it ultimately plugs them into this extremely, you know, um, distant story, right? That, that in some ways can sort of comment on contemporary reality without really directly doing so at all. Right, right, right. I mean, what, one of the things that's going on here is, uh, a, com- a set of comments on, what we now call like toxic masculinity um, and uh, what the right relationship of um, masculinity is to um, 
to femininity and to um, the workforce and and religion, right? So, you know, um, the chalice and the blade is belongs more to um, uh, th- this this earlier phase of feminism in relation to the spiritual development of the West and speculation about its own history that also included something like the men's movement and in, in the past where um, uh, we could think maybe here about, uh, about Robert Bly or a figure like that. And, um, and so, so the reason why the incelification of Robert Langdon is so interesting is that there are, there is a question here about what to do with men now that men are useless or something like that, right? And so we can see some of that playing out in the different kinds of, um, crises that are brought about by men in Dan Brown's novels and the ways in which masculinity, um, can achieve some sort of, um, non, violent and uh, um resolution right and uh that's you know, chiefly imagined here as um you know getting off by by being a researcher rather than actually getting off and um and certainly um uh, c- certainly not by by having a sort of functional sexual relationship right so it's um that's that's floating around here as well Yeah. And, you know, again, I think, um, this, and, you know, once we got to the next novel, um, the lost symbol will sort of come full circle, right? Because yes. we'll kind of, um, return Langdon to the heart of the, the American state. Yes. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's a, <laughs> it's an important novel in the sequence because it, it essentially fuses the interests of the the two non-Langdon novels with the interests of the Langdon novels. Right. Um, and so I think it's also just, you know, these are, are, you know, people talk about the crisis of liberalism. I mean, I think, you know, th- these novels are an int- are interesting documents of the, cri- the sort of imaginative crisis of liberalism because they, they partly enact this process of attempting to recover um, some sort of, um, I mean, I could go back to the Leotardian terminology here, right? Right. Some sort of grand récit, some sort of meta narrative, right? Yeah. That will provide some kind of deeper legitimation. Um, because, you know, especially because it would seem that in the Bush years, there's kind of this, um, this conservative, this kind of reawakened, narrative of sort of conservative patriotism grounded in a certain, you know, version of, of American Christianity that seems to be, you know, politically and militarily potent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, I mean, I don't think Brown is, you know, I, I, I imagine his books could be read by people across the spectrum, but I, you know, just given his own, sort of personal history and affiliations, you know, I, I think these, these are novels of the sort of crisis of, of liberal culture in its, particularly its kind of search for new, 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 new narratives of, of legitimation. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, and, exactly. And also new ways of understanding its kind of role on the world stage, right? So, you know, while you have um, the the one model of America, which is sort of one attempt to, um, you know, resurrect the Cold War, you know, which which it seems for a little while like the new neocons are succeeding at doing, right? In the years around when this when Da Vinci Code is published, right? That there's sort of a um, uh, a resurrection of the Cold War narrative where we have a new enemy and we can, you know, kind of, um, get the band back together and, and, um, do the, do that stuff again. But, you know, it, it's, it, it encounters various challenges, but basically, on the other hand, you have the question of like, what, what's the alternative to that, right? And so these novels are in some sense a kind of ans- attempt to answer that question. And they, you know, I think their popularity is a, an indication of, of the way that they, they succeeded, right? But at the same time, they also, um, I mean, you know, there are a few things that are odd about this, right? One is that the narrative that's introduced is one that is, you know, overtly not, not simply right wing, but sort of re- deeply reactionary, right? Because it, it has yes. to do with, um, it has to do with kind of celebrating and idolizing an ancient, um, monarchical bloodline, right? <laughs> which is, which is tied to explicitly to a notion of the sacred, right? Um, and so, you know, what's odd is in a part, the sort of appeal of this type of narrative, which is, you know, can be sort of superficially coded as feminist is, is actually it's sort of, um, reassertion of a, a kind of reactionary ideology, which again comes out of an, an overtly reactionary figure, Pierre Plantard, um, that, you know, it's, it was otherwise almost impossible to articulate at this time, right? And, and I'd say, you know, more recently you do have, um, at least in this kind of weird online world that I spend too much time and you do have a kind of reassertion of these sorts of ideas, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. at the time it was largely unimaginable that anyone would actually explicitly, you know, announce these kind of things as, as political doctrines. Um, you know, you, you started, this was of course, not long before you had the first, you know, to go back to somebody we brought up in the first episode, you had the first mold bug um, blog on qualified reservations where you have a kind of new sort of monarchist yeah. ideology being articulated explicitly as a response to the sclerosis of American institutions. Right. Yep. So, um, but basically, um, you know, this kind of a narrative and, and I think, you know, the sort of strange legacy of this, um, you know, of, of kind of Langdonian interpretive praxis as well as, you know, the kind of vague sort of smorgasbord of, of ideas that are raised in these, um, in these, uh, books is, is the kind of popularized, popularization of conspiracy online, right? Right. And of course, you know, on one hand you have, I mean, again, just going into the period, being a period of kind of suspicion of, of institutions and the state, you know, of course you have 9-11 truth emerge in this period. Um, and you have, uh, 
that as kind of an interestingly politically amorphous conspiracy theory, right? Where it, it, it it's not clear whether it's coded right or left. It's it kind of has some of both, or or some of you know people on both sides participate in it. But it is kind of one of the first fully online conspiracy movements, and it's also it's also probably the last major one that was sort of mostly understood as a left or even liberal body of right. conspiracy theory. Whereas now this kind of pop, this world of popularized conspiracy theory is understood to be right wing inherently. Right? right. And so that's, I guess the ironic, or one of the ironic legacies of the Da Vinci code is that it, it puts into practice this kind of interpretive mode that we talked about before that can then be kind of picked up and used by anybody with an internet connection. But you know, the, the, the descendants of that is something like QAnon. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which of course, is also, you know, it's something that links to a kind of fictional fantasy of um, a sort of inside view of the deep state. Right. Right. It it this this gets back to um, something we started at the beginning of this conversation, which was, you know, how how does how does hyperstition work? It's uh, okay. So there's one model of the way hyperstition is supposed to function, which is that you inject into the archive, um, you know, some fake document, which is uh, leads to the creation in real life of the thing that was first symbolic, right? There's a kind of reversal of the order um, of signification and, um, and things get kind of, you know, memed into, into existence. But one of the problems with this version of hyperstition or, you know, memeing somebody into the office or memeing them into existence is um, that it's not entirely clear that the processes that people use for navigating the symbolic universe that they swim around in, um, it involves a kind of mirroring structure. Instead, we get things like, um, the creation of documents in the past um, by, you know, sort of, as you said, ludic uh, experimental, um, um, you know, sort of my, minor French figures. And and then you get the resonance of those documents to you know, many links down the chain in, in a wider popular world, the uptake of the Da Vinci Code. And that is about a mode of reading that is associated with it, not with content, right? So um, the thing that is getting memed into existence here um, is is a strategy for knowing, a particular conspiracy strategy for knowing, a strategy for disavowing knowledge and a way of, in, and a way of interacting with science. Um, uh, so this, at least as a, a sort of contribution to, um, to, 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 the study of, of hyperstition, which, you know, connects back to this, um, perhaps disastrously online universe that we, we both, um, we both inhabit, you know, that there, there's a theorist in the, in the Da Vinci code that it may renders all of this sort of ideological conflict, you know, quite explicit. There's these sort of kind of tiresome, um, discussions between Langdon and Sophie and Teabing and, um, Teabing brings up explicitly the ideological shift at the um, at the end of the millennium and uh, 
the the 2000 year long astrological astrological age of Pisces and uh, you know which is the age of Jesus and the entering into the age of Aquarius um where uh um truth will be kind of set free um in a certain way and and that ideological shift as uh you know the and the apocalypse of the um of the end of the millennium there um is isn't isn't what it is hoped for there part of his insanity is um Keeping's insanity is his commitment to the possibility of um uh, man, the successful management of master narratives um, and maybe even new master narratives. Um, and instead we get a kind of um, ungodly um, um, runaway semiotic reading process. That is, I mean, among the other things that QAnon is, is um, it's a runaway reading strategy and um, that involves the kind of rearrangement of surface signs um, in ways that just very clearly resemble the interpretive procedures of symbology yeah so including the you know there's moments where um robert langdon um kind of you know rearranges the fibonacci sequence and this tells him you know where and when to um you know find the uh the the next sign or um you know discovers that a series of signs have been laid out are all signs of the sacred feminine and you know this directs him um uh, not just to other meanings, but to particular times and places. And you can find that same interpretive strategy at work in QAnon, right? Um, where um, rearrangement of surface features of a purported code um, uh, has a, you know, sort of concrete, you know, concrete dates are indicated in a kind of millennial, millennial fashion. And, um, um, and, and that, that enterprise is also a kind of imagining, um, as you just said, um, the interactions of the deep state in a kind of hopeful, positive way, ultimately, right? So there's some, there's some notion of millennial justice going on in QAnon, um, and of actors behind the scenes, um, being good guys. Um, and, and this fantasy, as you said, is also now, um, belongs to the right, not to the left. The left imagines that um, the people behind the scenes are all bad guys, whereas the right imagines the people behind the scenes are potentially good guys. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting yeah. legacy. Just one other theme, and maybe we can, you know, wrap up this episode. But, um, you know, I wrote something recently about this, but another another way to kind of locate this in cultural history is, you know, in terms of the sort of popularization of the so-called hermeneutic of suspicion. Right. Yes. Um, and, you know, what I find kind of interesting and what, the thing I wrote about is sort of that this goes along with and is some in some ways, um, you know, could be argued to be the cause or partially the cause of um, the sort of discrediting of the hermeneutic of suspicion and the kind of modes of critique that go with it within the academy. Right. And so or or another way to think about this is that you have the popularization of the hermeneutic of suspicion at the same time as you have this rise of what, you know, uh, Sloterdijk and Zizek talk about as cynical ideology, right? So in other words, the hermeneutic of suspicion is popularized. So, you know, this, this mo- the suspicious mode of reading where you uncover um, hidden agendas, hidden motives, um, 
you know, where nothing is as it seems, where the surface is this kind of encoded text that needs to be deciphered in order to get to the deeper level, um, you know, is is central to the sort of modern intellectual um, <clears throat> tradition and legacy. Um, but, you know, the, this notion of cynical ideology is sort of that you can have a, and 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 it carries with it the notion that with this kind of um, with this kind of revelation or demystification comes liberation, right? Comes freedom, right? And so the cynical ideology notion is simply that you can have a society that is unliberated while at the same time engaging endlessly in demystification, right? So and and in fact is explicitly invested in kind of self demystification, right? That that you know. Um, a simple example of this is like, you know, advertisements that will sort of tell you how they work, right? Tell you how they're trying to trick you into buying a product, right? And then sort of wink at you, right? Right. And so the, so the point here is that, um, you know, you can have power that still functions even when it, even when no one actually believes it, right? Even, or even when no one actually kind of believes it's ruses, Right. So that's kind of the notion here. I mean, and Zizek locates a lot of this in like his analysis of the late sort of Soviet bloc, right? Where basically you could have every, you know, institutions are entirely discredited. Nobody believes anything the leaders say, but nevertheless, the whole thing keeps chugging along for quite a while. Right. Um, and so the notion that you can, by saying, Hey, actually, this is all absurd and bizarre and like our leaders are totally corrupt, like that this will somehow trigger liberation has become absurd. You know, nobody, nobody believes in the leaders anymore, but also nobody believes that demystifying the ideology behind their rule will actually lead to any change. Right. So that's kind of the cynical ideology notion. So, you know, part of what's interesting is you have this um, and then at the same time you have, the popular, but, but this does not, um, in a way discredit the kind of pursuit of mystification. In some ways it accelerates it, right? And, and makes it even more universal. And so, you know, these novels can be seen as one and their immense popularity can be seen as symptomatic of that. Cool. So that's, that's one way to think about it. F- uh, closing thoughts. Um, I shiver at uh, the future discussion of the aftermath of this peak symbology moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's all, it's all decline and decadence from here on out. So same as it ever was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, right. Astronauts in space always has been. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, exactly. Exactly. Okay, cool. Well, um, a pleasure as always. Yeah, and take care. We will return for the lost symbol, hopefully with a, a surprise uh, second guest. Excellent. But more to be revealed on that front in the at some future moment. All right. Okay, man. Take care.